It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to old Maui. Welcome to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. I'm Mark. And I'm Ben. This is our last episode. Of the book. Yeah, not really our last episode. We have we have plans uh, for more episodes later. But we... let's get to this, because yeah. I'm so excited. Because yeah, we're this... here. We're finally here. Oh, we really are. Chapter 135, The Chase, Third Day. The last full chapter of the book. <sighs> uh, this, this is the chapter where... The they where Ahab has his final confrontation with Moby Dick and the fate of the Pequod is sealed. Yes, this is this is the event. This is what everything has been leading up to in all its various ways. And <sighs> this is the climax of the novel. Yes, very straightforwardly. There is Moby Dick has no uh, denouement. I mean, it has the epilogue, and that's the closest thing. That does not count. That like the epilogue's an epilogue. And it does not, it's like, it's half a page, and it's really good, but this book basically, uh, it's sunset is also it's noon, to quote Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. Okay. Like, it just, it stops at its, like, pinnacle of action. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much correct. Um, so, uh, you know, what happens in this chapter... Um, it's the the third day of the chase, uh, the morning dawns and all the lookouts return to the rigging. Yeah, I really like that these three days of the chase really are just straightforwardly from dawn to dusk, and in fact from dawn through the night, just a whole day. So you get this very, like, intense rhythm in the end, which I think is intended to be, you know, this is what the chase is like when you are hunting a specific whale for three days you have this very specific rhythm that, you know, previously we've been hunting whales, but they've generally been caught within the day and not really pursued past that. This now gives us this very um, structured sense of time as and therefore rhythm as we go into the end. Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, I think there's even something like, uh, something maybe mythic mm-hmm. or... Uh, folkloric or 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 epic maybe Mm -hmm. uh about this like repetition of three days and like the different sort of events that take place on each day like um and when i say it seems epic i mean i do mean that it's an epic win of literature um but the epic is a form yes i mean that this makes me think of the way that uh you know the events on say each day of a battle might be recounted in, like, the Iliad Mm -hmm. or something like that. Yeah. Um, (sighs) And, uh, yeah, um, there's just a lot of, uh, I mean, this always, this has been happening in this book throughout, but just in this chapter, there are a lot of speeches. Yes. That are so, like, dense with allusions and where the kind of, like, uh, uh, conceptual and like metaphorical and symbolic 
structure that's being talked about is like shifting so quickly from sentence to sentence um yeah you might say ahab is trying to uh wrestle the whole world to the ground mentally yeah no i think that's true uh you say that like it's a joke. Yeah, I he's, don't... he's 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 making war against the world as a whole with his mind. He's attempting to compass it. You might even say that uh, he's hunting it. Okay. As though... Yes. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I get I get what you're saying. I thought that the analogy of what you were saying to what he is literally doing was so clear that I didn't oh. realize it was a joke. <laughs> well, I was it's like, not so much a joke as just that I think that's like a I think it's a fun correspondence. Yeah. Um. So yes, we go straight from you know. The sun is up, or starting to come up. Ahab cries, do you see him? But there's no sign yet of the white whale. So Ahab goes into a soliloquy. Yeah, um... Okay, we didn't plan this, and maybe we should have... Like, which which bits do we want to read? I oh, that's a good question. Like, I do think that the... Let me just kind of count quickly, because there's, there's this ahab speech which definitely has some stuff in it that i feel like you're yeah, gonna yeah. talk about in close reading absolutely absolutely um uh there's the speech that starts forehead to forehead i meet thee this third time um, oh god it's the thing is it's all good it's yeah, yeah, yeah it's all good i think um this there's the there's the starbucks speech <sighs> yep, yep or i'm sorry no there's multiple of those the first starbucks first starbucks speech. there's a lot here i think probably First of all, I think we can be a bit indulgent. This is the final chapter of the it book. It is. It really, really is. Uh, I do think that, at least in this first speech, because like you say, it goes, goes back and forth. Ahab is trying out different directions. He starts off talking about, you know, how, uh, you know, how they follow the whale and how it's this beautiful morning. And then he goes from thing to thing in it with these real turns. Like, you have almost un-Ahab-like moments of discussion, but they serve only to set up his intensifications, his, like, the, the the convolutions of his brain. Okay. So it's, I think that we don't want to read this whole speech in one chunk. I think we want to read excerpts, if you see what I mean. Yeah, So that's... I think in one chunk it'll be difficult to follow. Yes, I think that's totally fair. Um... Yeah, but I do want to read the start of the speech. Yes. <laughs> Can I? Yeah, go for yeah. it. In his infallible wake, though, but follow that wake, that's all. Helm there, steady as thou goest, and hast been going. What a lovely day again. We're in a new-made world, and made for a summer-house to the angels, and this morning the first of its throwing open to them. A fairer day could not dawn upon that world. Here's food for thought. Had Ahab time to think, but Ahab never thinks. He only feels, feels, that's tingling enough for mortal man. To think's audacity. God only has that right and privilege. Thinking is or ought to be a coolness and a calmness, and our poor hearts throb and our poor brains beat too much for that. And yet I've sometimes thought my brain was very calm. Frozen calm, this old skull cracks so, like a glass in which the contents turn to ice and shiver it. And I want to stop there because he's just gone through this, like, precise uh, turn from, like, Edenic uh, images of this beautiful new day to, ah, uh, you know, humans are not made for such a thing. Humans can't, like, think calmly. We are driven by our feelings. I am driven by my feelings. And yet, what drives me is thought, is, like, comprehension. I think so much. My, my skull is cracking from my frozen brain. Yeah, yeah, as you as you say, he's like really moving through a bunch of different images in in what you just read and what you just read is not like the entirety of this speech. No, no, no. This There's I so stopped much more. like 
a third of the way through because we've already got two different turns. And I think it's really interesting that here we have this idea of, oh, you know, he's disavowing hubris for a second for rhetorical effect. Ahab disavowing hubris. I know. Also, Ahab disavowing thought. Like, when he says Ahab never thinks, he only feels, feels, feels. I'm definitely like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Like, this whole time it's been your imperial brain, man. Uh, but but I, I think I understand what he's trying to communicate here, which is, uh, as you say, not so much that he literally thinks this is, thinks this is true, and more like he kind of feels like uh, even his even his sort of uh, constant thinking. His radiocination. Yeah, which is in some sense coolness and cold, cold as ice, as opposed to the kind of like heat of feeling. Passion, intensity, um, yeah. It's... His thought is so intense it cracks his skull. It shivers it. Uh, it's you know it's ex- his brain is expanding as it freezes. So there's a sense in which he's he's showing how coolness can also be jarring or intense. And he's also I think making a sort of weird I think allusion to Eden and the fall, but in a very gnostic frame where it's like oh the way that this like beautiful day is is it might give us time to think. And, you know, it, you know this, this idea that thought is perhaps Edenic and calm and divine. But wait, I am full of thought and it turns me on to my purpose more. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that, uh, um, you know, the idea that thinking is, is God's right and privilege and it's not yes. meant for humanity, uh, that is definitely present in, certainly in, like, Gnostic or, like, Ophite reads of Eden and the Fall. But, you know, it's not only present in uh, those specific reads. A lot of people kind of look at the idea of eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and, like, the, you know, the parts of Genesis where God is like, if they eat of that tree, they're going to become like gods knowing these things. And so there's the sense that there is some kind of knowledge that God has that he didn't want humanity to also have, but they did in some way obtain. Yes. Um, and, you know, there's there's various complicated readings of that. I don't want to act like it's yes. a, it's a uh, home run for Gnosticism that the tree of good, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a thing. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't think uh, we are trying in, in this discussion to say that you cannot possibly have an interpretation of the fall of man that, like, <laughs> doesn't accord with Gnosticism. Sure, sure. But... <laughs> but um, Yes, there is this idea of, of, also I think here an idea of, when he says to think's audacity, part of it is about sort of objectivity, because he says that, you know, thinking is or ought to be a coolness and a calmness, and our poor hearts throb and our poor brains beat too much for that. So there's this idea that, like, to be able to think, really think, to be able to really compass this, uh, this experience and understanding requires... I mean, frankly, it requires Ishmael's passivity. It requires that sort of calmness and openness and, uh, you know, this sort of soothing quality that I think is what Ishmael describes when he talks about the possibility of falling from the masthead, an almost narcotic quality to pure and abstract thought. And I think that that's part of what's being brought up here, which is that only God can be so disinvolved, sorry, disinvolved, so... um, uninvolved and undisturbed as to have like true abstract thought yet ahab still thinks intensely and constantly yeah yeah i think maybe something like that makes sense um do you want to move forward yeah yeah i think we should keep going with this with this speech um 
uh, he he talks about his hair. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, basically uh, he says. Ah, uh, but you know, my hair is still growing. You know, my my beard, my my you know tangled hair because he's he's not shaving. Remember, mm-hmm. or ha- or trimming his hair, uh, it's still growing, and that means there must be heat somewhere. Like it doesn't grow. Grass doesn't grow purely out of frozen ground, uh, except that also. There is that, what he says, he describes as that sort of common grass that will grow anywhere between the earthy clefts of Greenland ice or in Vesuvius lava. So there's this idea of, like, life that can cling even to a frozen skull or a, you know, um, or, a, or a volcano. You know, again, the two sides of Ahab, this utter passion and this, you know, utter cogitation. But there's still, like, some kind of life there that, you know, grows between them. But it's a common life. It's not really what he cares about. Yeah, and and thinking about his hair, it brings him to thinking about the wind because it's blowing it around. Yeah, um, and he's really running a mile a minute here. Uh, yeah, and uh, and and he like he he kind of takes the wind to be like sort of like evil and good at the same time because as it's coming to them, it's like a fair wind and there's it's as innocent as fleeces. But then he also is like, oh, it's blown through like prisons and hospital wards i think maybe he's kind of saying just that like any wind that blows blows upon evil places because that's what there is on this world yeah it's also you know he says how the wild winds blow it they whip it about me his hair as the torn shreds of split sails lash the tossed ship they cling to so there's this image of like the the destruction the wind can cause even you know physically with the sail and he also suggests that, like you say, anywhere on this world, the wind will be like, I mean, he literally says it's tainted. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, were I the wind, I'd blow no more on such a wicked, miserable world. I'd crawl somewhere to a cave and slink there. So there's this idea of, like, responding to the evils of the world. You know, he's certainly very consciously aware of them by retreating from them, by, you know, hiding out in a cave, literally. But, you know, you can also easily read this as... You know, returning home to Nantucket, no longer going upon the dark and terrible sea where Moby Dick has his dominion. Uh, but then he immediately, and I think sort of necessarily, turns on that and says, well, actually, no, the wind is heroic in a sense because it's, you know, still out there. Yeah, but but also, I mean, he, he, he calls the wind heroic in the fact that, like, it is, you know, like, unconquerable by man, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, you can't uh, attack it. Do, do you mind... And yet, tis a noble and heroic thing, the wind. Whoever conquered it, in every fight it has the last and bitterest blow. Run tilting at it, and you but run through it. But then immediately from this thing that he's describing as heroic in the wind, he turns around and calls it cowardly. Yeah. Ha! A coward wind that strikes stark naked men, but will not stand to receive a single blow. Even Ahab is a braver thing, a nobler thing than that. So. And, and the next, I think the next sentence is very important. Yeah. Would now the wind but had a body. But all the things that most exasperate and outrage mortal man, all these things are bodiless, but only bodiless as objects, not as agents. And there's a most special, a most cunning, oh, a most malicious difference. Yeah. And this is really, I think, important. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it really is. All this stuff. Um, it, it, uh. This is where I thought that maybe you had an issue with the Power Movie Dick Oh, yeah, no, the Power Movie Dick citation says that... uh, Okay, so I I, want to outline what we, how we gloss, at least how I gloss, and I think... I'd rather say the Power Movie Dick thing first and then get to our gloss. I guess people, I feel like people will be confused, because I don't think that our gloss is evident to most people, so I want to lay out what it actually is. Okay. Um, Because, 
The distinction between object and agent is... It's important. It's come up uh, primarily, or originally, as the white whale, be he agent or be he principal, which is a right. slightly so different. That's the thing. I think that the, the, the relationship between principal and object is not clear, and I want to mm. really uh, dice that apart in a very specific way. Okay, so... Um, so, like, uh, when he's saying that uh, these things that exacerbate an outraged mortal man are bodiless as objects, what he means is they can't be... They have no body to be acted upon. They can't be the object that receives an action. Mm -hmm. But they are, they do have bodies as agents. They have a body that can move on other people. So, like, in a sort of literal sense, the wind can affect you. It can push on you. But you can't affect the wind. You can't push on it. Yes, that that's my gloss as well. The agent here means sort of an acting, something that acts. And this is similar to the previous use of be he agent or be he principal about the white whale, because an agent is, and a principal's relationship is the principal is the one who is like the, uh, I mean, like the sponsor or the actual seller of goods, and the agent acts on their behalf. So an agent is one who employs a principal to go out and act on their behalf in the world. In both cases, agent is meant in the sense of agency, one who acts, one who has the power to act. And so when he says, you know, this would have been, hundreds of pages ago with um, be the white whale agent or be he principal, he's saying whether the whale is, you know, merely acting on behalf of some hidden power that, you know, decrees these awful things to me and decrees these things I cannot accept, or if the whale is himself that thing which decrees, it doesn't matter to me because either way, what I chiefly hate is the whale. Either way, the, the whale is the one that he can strike. And then here... He has this idea of agents and objects where the problem is that you can't strike the agent that is striking you. Yeah, I feel like it's worth noting that um, to some extent the meaning of the word agent is like flipped between these two, or not flipped exactly, but... It changes a little, but I think it's very constant. Well, well, so there's two different metaphors that use the mm -hmm. word agent going on here, because the... Be the White Whale agent or be he principal, which, by the way, is in Chapter 36, the quarter deck. Thank you. Um, which is which is basically uh, Moby Dick giving the speech. You mean Ahab it. giving the speech. Oh, wow, yeah, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah, it's Ahab. It's, this is Ahab's uh, oath in his speech when he, this is when he enlists the crew in his intention to slay the White Whale. Uh, we played music behind it. Yeah, yeah. We had yeah. a lot of fun with that one. Anyway, it's a good speech. So as you alluded to in this context i think agent and principal are in some sense almost a financial metaphor yeah and yeah. and it is the principal that is kind of the ultimate source of the action and then the agent that uh is you know as you were saying the one that like does the action but not the yes. ultimate cause and in that context if moby dick is agent that implies that moby dick could be kind of unconscious right could lack malice mm, i see i think that either of these requires that he lacks malice like let's say let's just put uh wait if, if moby dick is principal he lacks malice no 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 sorry i i think that in either case he has malice uh, I misspoke. Okay. We're, we're getting excited in even let's say let's put the principal as you know abraxas or evil or the world or god whatever either way Moby Dick is still, from Ahab's perspective, the willing agent of that power. You know, God's largest and most terrible angel. Um, sure. Because I... he's very clear that what, you know, uh, 
be the white whale agent or be the white whale principal, I will wreak that hate upon him. Uh, so he, the whale, that inscrutable thing that causes all these problems is what he chiefly hates. I misquoted that as saying it was the whale he hates. But in either case, the whale is still guilty of it. The whale is still, I think, seen as being, you know, agential, having agency. And I think that's the core idea that runs through this. I don't think either concept of agent for the whale is unconscious. Okay, that's fair. I guess I read this, again, going right back to the language in chapter 36. Yeah. Starbuck, this when Ahab says this, this is the little lower layer thing, right? Yes. Where like Starbuck is objecting to what he's saying. And so Ahab is like, all right, let me reveal a little bit more of my mystery to you because you like require further explanation. Yeah. And Starbuck's complaint is vengeance on a dumb brute. And Ahab responds to that saying, you know, all visible objects, man, are but as pasteboard masks, which I think is kind of Ahab saying like, I, I, it doesn't feel to me like in that uh, chapter 36 speech, Ahab is rejecting the idea that Moby Dick is a dumb brute is, you know, thoughtless, but rather is saying something along the lines of, yeah, so is everything in the world, potentially. There's only kind of one thought thing behind the world, and everything is the agent of it, um, potentially. I, I, he's he's clearly not in this speech giving a, a clear statement of what he thinks the relationship is between, like, whatever principles might exist beyond the world and Moby Dick. But I, I think the idea that that Moby Dick is an unthinking agent of a thinking principle, I think that idea is at least present. I suppose. I think that when he says pasteboard max, ma uh, masks, the implication there is that the substance of the thing is that inscrutable thing that, uh, you know, acts within the world through its agents. And in that way, the white whale is a vessel for that, uh, for that action, for that malice. And specifically, and I think this is sort of the important part about connecting it to the speech later, the most important part is he, you know, says... Talk not to me of bat blasphemy, man. I'd strike the sun if it insulted me. Because Starbucks' complaint is that vengeance on a dumb brute seems blasphemous. It's like, it's, you know, it's mistaking the world in some important way that seems to imply something about God or about how the world is. And Ahab says, talk not to me of blasphemy. If I can be insulted, I must be able to insult back. If I can be struck, I can strike back. And precisely his issue in the current speech is that these uh, these things in the world that vex people, that exasperate and outrage mortal man, are bodiless, but only bodiless as objects. That is, they're cheating. They cannot be struck, but they can strike you. Yes. So it's And he's declaring, actually, no, I can strike them. There is some kind of justice. At least that's what he declared when he made his oath. So now we have him wavering on that. He's wondering, can I actually strike back? Can I strike through the mask? Is it, in fact... The, a possibility that the world does not have this most basic justice that Ahab relies on in its structure. Yes, uh, and and this, uh, I said I wanted to lay out like the way that I think the word agent is being used in slightly different ways yeah. and has slightly different metaphorical content. So before it was a almost financial metaphor, um, although in this current one, I think the metaphor is primarily actually grammatical. Um, yeah. Because I think object is being used here in the sense of like almost literally yeah, object, the object of, of a, a sentence. Verb. Yeah. 
Yeah, so, like, you know, in the sentence, like, uh, Ahab harpoons the whale, uh, the whale is, grammatically speaking, the object of the verb harpoons. Um, and the, you know, the agent, uh, I, I don't think agent is used as a technical grammatical term no, it's, it's in the not, way that it's really object not, yeah. is. It would be subject rather than, but, but the point is that, like, um, I mean, you might point out that what Ahab cares about is not the whale's subjectivity, but the whale's agency. Like, okay, uh, I'm trying to talk about grammar. Sorry, I don't well, totally understand. What I'm that. saying is that's why he doesn't say subjects. He says agents. Okay, like, can I'm, you? Uh, I'm sorry, I don't understand what you're talking about. I'm help, saying help that when he when he says only bodiless as objects, not as agents, you say, well, this is a mixed metaphor. Gram grammatically, he should be saying. I I really didn't mean that it was a mixed metaphor. I just meant I mean, that he was using. Like 19th century language. Yeah, but I don't think that's the 19th century term for this grammar because object and subject are very old words. Okay, so what are you saying? I'm saying that he's intentionally using agent because he's focusing, because he wants, first of all, the, the text wants to create that connection back to agent and principle. Yes, that's certainly true. And then secondly, what is important here is not the, uh, the subject in the sense of being the one, being the individual, but the agent in the sense of being the actor, the one who takes the action. That is to say that on some level you don't need to be a you know, subject, have subjectivity, etc., etc., to be, to act, and what he's focused on here is agency, is action. And I think, I think that is important that it's not merely a grammatical relationship, but does have this echo of this prior concept of one who acts on behalf of another. Yeah, um, that's totally fair, and I definitely think that in this discussion, objects and agents, there is the concept of, like, a principle that lies behind the agent and, like, moves the agent to action. That's totally, like, possible in this discussion, but I think it's worth pointing out that in agent and principle, agent is the one that's closer to Ahab. The principle is further away, he can only get at it through the agent. On the other hand, in this objects and agents thing it's the object if he could get at it that would be the thing he could directly contact whereas the agent is the thing that he can't see i i read it differently because it's the body the agent in theory could be something he contacts but it's bodiless the agent is cheating uh because he is the object no, no, the, the agent the, the agent does have a body in that sorry no no you're right bodiless is objects not as agent. you're right he cannot it is bodiless when he strikes at it when it becomes an object it is bodiless when it is an agent it has a body in fact i would say the agent is still able to get to, the agent can get to ahab but he can't get to it as an object yes so i don't I, I don't think closeness is really the the structure i'd use for thinking about this because okay. the agent is still close enough to strike him and then the object is too is is untouchable so in a sense the object is further away that you see how i mean mm, yeah the whole I see point is that it's a Ahab is arguing that this makes no sense, that this is an unfair arrangement, that this is like, you know, uh, hey, what is he, what is he described as? A most cunning, oh, a most malicious difference. Yeah, yeah. That on some level, part of the problem we're having here in working this out is that he's describing a paradox. He's not describing something that really makes physical sense to imagine if you make, like, the agent out to be a person, they're like a ghost. You can't touch them, but for some reason they can touch you. Something is wrong here. Yeah. No, you're right. I think that makes sense. Uh, I do want to, like, point out that, like, this is, again, going back to chapter 36, where he, he really mm -hmm. makes it clear that he views the white whale as, like, an, uh, you know, he says that the white whale is, like, the wall 
thrust near nearest to him. him. Yeah, the, Me- meaning like the the wall of like the physical world that separates him from whatever it is that he chiefly hates. Yes, the the it is the pasteboard mask that is closest to him. And if man would strike, strike through the mask. Yeah, mask. I'm just really tripping over my tongue today. I'm so excited. You're really you're specifically struggling with the word mask. Also, there was another one earlier. Okay. There's been a few things. And you called Ahab Moby Dick, so... I I did. I wasn't trying to own you. I was trying to limit... I was trying to say, oh, you're only having this one problem. And then you were like, (laughs) no, 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 no. I'm not. (laughs) Anyway, um... (sighs) but, But I think that, like... It is interesting that he is in this moment frustrated by the idea of, like, bodiless, uncontactable, uh, malevolence... Mm-hmm. Uh, but the whole idea with his perspective on Moby Dick this whole time was supposed to be that Moby Dick is the embodied evil. Evil. Yeah. Moby Dick is that maliciousness as an object that has a body that he can go yes. out and contact with his harpoon. And I mean, I will say nothing in this speech causes him to turn back on Moby Dick. So I think that's the subtext, which is the reason he's still sailing for Moby Dick. The thing that drives him on is the fact that he's surrounded by these vexing, malicious, inescapable, cunning things which he cannot strike. So he will still sail the Pequod down upon the white whale. He will still lower. He will still wield the harpoon because there he can strike. Yeah, and I think that he even, like, because now he, he, like, moves through the image again. Yeah, yeah. He's talking about the the wind. um, Do you want to read the next sentence yeah sure and and uh, i just wanted to like kind of i i think as he's talking about the wind he is you know in some sense talking about like uh the maliciousness in nature the maliciousness in god Mm -hmm. right uh but then and yet i say again and swear it now that there's something all glorious and gracious in the wind um and i think that's uh i think in that sentence he's kind of acknowledging like ah like there is divine essence in the wind right but then in the next sentence, these warm trade winds, at least, that in the clear heavens blow straight on in strong and steadfast, vigorous mildness, and veer not from their mark, however the baser currents of the sea may turn and tack, and mightiest Mississippis of the land swift and swerve about, uncertain where to go at last. Uh, so he's kind of like, I think he's moved through, he's just saying, at first it's like, just there is something glorious in the wind in general, and then it's like, oh, actually, specifically, these winds that we have right now that are steadfast. steadfast and that are driving me on towards my goal of Moby Dick, mm-hmm. that's the wind that has something glorious in it. Yeah, and I mean, I think that the the glorious and gracious element is, I think there's a certain quality that Ahab has been repeatedly confronted with, especially recently in such as in The Gilder, which is the beauty of the world, its glories, the parts of it that are, to some extent arguments for a benevolent divine for a benevolent world and so he's saying yes there is it's not an unmixed evil as miserable as he says the world is in whole it's not unmixed in that respect and this the thing that is good in it is that it is steadfast and consistent and in fact he goes on to say and by the eternal poles these same trades that so directly blow my good ship on these trades are something like them something so unchangeable and full as strong blow my keeled soul along to it aloft there what do you see so he's he comes around to return to himself to say the thing that is good in the world is it ste- is something steadfast that you can sail by and drives you onwards towards your chosen goal and do not you know tarry or turn and that is also in me. What is 
ultimately, I think, going on here is he says the quality in the world and in the divine that is acceptable, that is good, is also a thing that I have. Yes, and it is the thing that drives me to attack Moby Dick. Yes. Um, uh. Like, it is basically ultimately... Uh, when you say that, like, thinking about the wind this way doesn't ultimately turn him aside, I think it's in part because of this sort of rhetorical move where the wind's sort of uh, constancy, and in some sense even its constancy in uh, blowing, like, in Ahab's face and, like, blowing Mm. his hair around, right? It's like, that doesn't mean, the fact that the wind is, in a sort of direct sense, blowing against Ahab, the, like, physical man, does not mean that it's not ultimately supporting his sailing goal, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think there's something there. Uh, but we should go back and actually touch on that uh, that note. Oh, right. We forgot to talk about the PowerMobyDick.com well, we didn't forget. Note. I didn't forget. We, I brought it up. We, well, I'm just I, saying... I mean, I I know I mentioned it. I just meant I forgot as oh, okay. we were going along. I got distracted by the other stuff we yeah. were talking about. Anyways, what they say is... Yeah, so the, the PowerMobyDick.com in describing the only bodiless as objects, not as agents line, it says, as concepts not as the physical embodiments of the concept. So it's like, they, they seem to think that the agent that has a body is the, like, concept of, I guess, God's wrath or whatever that is expressed in the wind. But the physical embodiment of the concept is the object, and that doesn't have a body? It's, it's frankly, it's incoherent. It doesn't make any sense. The idea that bodiless as objects, not as agents, and then saying the definition of object here is you know, generalized concept or the definition of agent is embodied object. It's like, well, yes, we just said that. It's, I think it's a vacuous reading. I think it, it actively clears meaning out of the sentence because it just becomes, ah, they're, you know, embodied when they're embodied, but not when they're not. Yeah, no, it's it's disappointing. Um... Yeah, it's it's honestly, you know, we've had a few of these, these side notes where, where we think our loyal sub-sub missed the mark, but this is probably the one where I'm like, kind of just I'm, I'm disappointed yeah yeah i mean look i think in general powermobydick.com has not been amazing at interpreting the meaning of lines that had somewhat obscure meanings mm. it has mostly been useful for linking us to wikipedia pages about the biblical citation that was clearly being made yeah. and i find that to be an extremely useful thing our uh, sponsor powermovedick.com but we've always <laughs> come into this with the intention of building our own interpretations sure, of sure. the things that are interpretable um so i just think that this specific one is no i agree it's just, it's, it's not just that it's weak it's that it's such a crucial thing to get off yeah i mean that's fair but i i think that uh my experience of like footnoted editions of books mm. has been that this is common, you know? Uh, I mean, I think maybe that like, like a Penguin Classics edition, the way that a uh, particular, maybe like impoverished reading of a particular line of something is going to be presented will be a little bit less, um, like the way PowerMobyDick.com presents this is very much just like, this is what it means. And I think um, mm-hmm. a more kind of, like, academic work, or more, like, officially academic work, yeah. would probably be a little bit more circumspect. But it's not like you don't find particular interpretations, which can sometimes be, like, wrong or 
that you can sometimes disagree with reasonably. Yeah, in yeah. I, I any just, annotated edition. I just think that it's not just reasonably. I think that the. I think that this is straightforwardly misleading, not just I disagree with it. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying that this is an inherent part yeah. of an annotation. Yeah, sometimes that's annotations fair. are wrong. Sometimes annotations include bad interpretations. That's mm-hmm. just the case. Um, and I, I guess. I guess the broader point I'm trying to make is that I kind of appreciate the straightforwardness <laughs> of PowerMovieDick.com. Um, yeah. I just feel like someone who is a little bit more subtle with their language would be able to confuse us a little more. <laughs> I okay. I like. I I think that the I think that if they were a bit more circumspect or less direct, what they would say is this might be interpreted this way, and I think that is probably more likely to lead to people developing their own ideas and being like i i I don't think i agree than just straightforwardly stating this is what this means grammatically like i mean have you never are you really telling me that you've never encountered like an annotated shakespeare or like any of the any of the many like annotated classic texts that you've read in the course of your education of course they sometimes say things that are just not true i mean sure i'm just i'm just saying that this one in particular is so blunt a statement and so like directly about this word means this this word means this that i haven't seen in an annotated version in an annotated edition maybe i just overlooked it maybe i just wasn't reading the annotations closely enough but no that that one struck me yeah that's fair i i agree that it's bad and like it's, i just i guess i'm just trying to defend powermobydick.com here i because love powermobydick.com there are not really a sponsor yeah yeah um, I just think that they dropped the ball on this one. That's true. And it's, the reason it's so frustrating is that this is, again, the the final chapter of the main narrative. It's such an important moment, and it's just a little painful that they dropped the ball on that line in particular. Yeah, yeah. It is, it's an important line, and it's frustrating to see it like that. Um. Anyways, it's noon. Yeah, yeah. Um... <laughs> They have not seen uh, Moby Dick yet, and Ahab's getting antsy. Yeah, Ahab comes to the conclusion, based on the fact that they've been sailing now with, like, all their lookouts placed for several hours and have not seen Moby Dick, uh, he, he, he figures that they have actually um, sailed past Moby Dick at this point. I've oversailed him. Uh, and he uh, decides to actually um, turn around in the opposite direction yeah i really love his line uh i he's chasing me now not i him that's bad <laughs> and i'm just like yes that does sound bad y- yeah uh and he also suggests that the possibility for why moby dick is going slower than he uh was previously is that he's towing more lines and harpoons. That ah, he's been yes. slowed by the injuries and the physical drag that's been put on him. And I really like that because it definitely, it emphasizes that Moby Dick can be struck and acted upon. Um, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't like draw attention to it. It's entirely in Ahab's sort of cogitation of, ah, he's gone slower than I inte- than I thought. I'll chase him now. And, you know, turn. now they turn the ship around. There's a great, uh, a great, great metaphor, which is, so they're now being pointed in the reverse direction. The braced ship sailed hard upon the breeze as she returned the cream in her own white wake. Although, I, I, Ishmael, don't make cream metaphors, please. God. <sighs> you know why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> um, anyway, uh, so, yeah, um... 
They're turning back. They're turning back, and, and Starbuck is not happy about <laughs> it. Yep. Um, Against the wind, he now steers for the open jaw, murmured Starbuck to himself. Yeah, and I, I love that he's 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 talking about how, like, he's not happy about this. He feels like doing this is disobeying God. Um, but he's doing it while he... Obeys. ...coils the main brace, which is to say he's, he's setting up... He's doing part of the work that is necessary yes. for this change in direction. Yeah, now that they're close hauled and going up the wind. Yeah, and, and God, the thing he says, God keep us, but already my bones feel damp within me, and from the inside wet my flesh. Oh. He, he feels so upset that his bones feel wet. Like God, this, I love when my bones cry. I, I, I could post this on Twitter today and be like, you ever feel so bad that your bones feel wet and, uh... Your bones feel damp within you and from the inside wet your flesh. And I feel like I would do numbers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, it's such a an upsetting image. Like, I'm imagining, like, dark spots on on his skin. Like, he's a, like he's a paper towel soaking Ugh. up liquid from the, the bone. I, I imagine that what is kind of meant by this is, like, I feel as though I'm already drowning, right? Yes, I'm already drowned bones. Yeah. Although, I gotta say, would bones being dry within you be better? Like, flesh is wet. You're, you're wet inside. Yeah, no, I agree. Probably normally your bones are wet, and it would actually be a big problem if they were dry. Yeah, like, dry bones is, is, is a metaphor for, for de- long dead. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, not a metaphor, a metonym. Anyways. Yeah, but... Synecticky? Yeah. I don't know, man. Um... Anyway. I mean, it's an effective line. It gives you a sense of exactly how he's feeling, which is like, uh, ugh, my bones feel wet. But also, ugh. Yes. <sighs> <sighs> anyway, they, uh, they sail that direction for an hour. And they um. put uh, Ahab up in his uh, watch point again. Mm-hmm. Also, I love the description of the hour passing. It's, oh, it's so good. Do you mind if I? Go for it. A whole hour now passed, gold beaten out to ages. Time itself now held long breaths with keen suspense. That phrase, gold beaten out to ages, like, the t- this hour is like, like precious gold hammered thin into a sheet. Yes. And the use of, I mean, frankly, I think there's probably a great paper in just the use of gold in this entire metaphor, from the doubloon to the gilder, the gilder and uh, the way gold is beaten out here. I think it really reoccurs in cases of time and sort of uh, obviously beauty and sort of a certain ductility and malleability to the world. Um, I think it has a connection to craft that isn't the same as the carpenters or the smiths. Yeah, no, you're right. I, I agree with you that, that gold as an image has reoccurred a number of times in this story and um, it's been used to imply a lot of different things and you know, obviously, just like gold is a precious metal. Well, it's a precious metal, but what I was about to say is that it is like weighty with mm. uh, sort of cultural meaning yes. and possible yes, yes. allusions. Um, yeah. You know, there's the there's the alchemical idea of gold. There is the like actual, yeah, literal kind of um, financial value of gold. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the sort of association. I mean, this is connected to the alchemical stuff, but more broadly, there's a metaphorical association of it with, like, sunlight, with perfection, sometimes, mm-hmm. like, with God. Um, but then also it's filthy lucre. Um, so, yeah, I, I I think 
tracing the imagery of gold throughout Moby Dick would be a, a fascinating thing to do. Um, I think we would have to. I don't feel ready to. Yeah, like, we're not make doing that statement. right now. No, no yeah, <laughs> but I'm, I'm just saying that I think that the thing that this most reminds me of is, is the Gilder when the uh, the water of the Pacific is turned to gold by the sunlight, and there's this moment of like serenity and time drawn out. Yes, and then uh, they do uh, they spot the spout again, uh, and everyone uh, you know sings out. Um, well, not just sings out. Instantly, from the three mastheads, three shrieks went up as if the tongues of fire had voiced it, which is a biblical illusion. Yes, he's, he's, uh, this, this is, um, uh, this is usually understood to be, or not usually understood, this is the Holy Spirit, uh, which, like, descended upon the disciples, like tongues of fire. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's like people are, um. Speaking in tongues of, you know, and calling the holy, like, power. Yeah, they they are they are moved by the spirit as so their 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 shrieks are so loud and so motivated that it's as if it's a, like a theophany. Yeah, um, which is to say, like an appearance of God. Yes, the yeah, world. we've used the word theophany before on this podcast, but we needed to we we never really defined it. I I really remember defining it the last time, but now I'm now I'm doubting myself. I'm pretty sure the last time I edited this show, I heard you say theophany with no citation. But oh. look, sometimes we use <laughs> words on this show that aren't entirely clear. Um, I remember also there was an episode where we consistently used the verb compassionate, which <sighs> that one I feel worse about because that's harder to Google because it's spelled <laughs> the same as the adjective compassionate. But it, um, but it, but it's a verb about uh, showing compassion. Yeah, too. showing compassion and ex- and experiencing that particular kind of empathy um where you you know um have this strong sense of someone else's suffering yeah um so that, yeah in case you all have been wondering what compassionate means for <laughs> weeks um but yeah theophany uh, just means like an appearance of god yes anyway um and, and there's a lot of interesting stuff about theophanies and they do appear in all sorts of different religious traditions so it's, it's a more general term than uh, specifically uh a you know an Abrahamic one. Yeah, I just want to mention that. Uh, yeah, so um, so now Ahab gives another little speech. Uh, just mostly, you know, it starts out as him, uh, kind of uh, urging everyone to you know. Yeah, this one is this one has a little bit of the turning and twisting, but not so much as the last one. Uh, do you want to read some of it? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that um, yeah, I I mean I you're right that there's not quite as much turning, but there is a lot of like like motion through images. Yeah. Um he he uh you know, he like he looks at the sea and and uh observes how like it is unchangeable. Uh an old old sight and yet somehow so young. I and not changed a wink since I first saw it, a boy from the sand hills of Nantucket. The same, the same, the same to Noah as to me. So like the ocean is the exact same as it's been from prehistory. And he's kind of, uh, here's the, the like, uh, lured and windward image mm-hmm. that we've had before, uh, where he's, he's kind of seeing something, something comforting and like safe in the Lee direction. Well, sort of. Do, do we want to read that bit? Yeah, sure. There's a soft shower to leeward. Such lovely lurdings, they must lead somewhere, to something else than common land, more palmy than the palms. Lured, 
The white whale goes that way. Look to windward, then. The better, if the bitterer quarter. Um, so he, he's like, he's saying that in the, in the lured direction, there is something... Paradisical. Yes, something more palmy than the palms. But also that is the direction that the white whale goes. And so it would actually be better to turn to windward. Uh, which in this case would, would mean turning away from his quest at this point. Um, well, no, he's turning windward towards the white whale. The white whale is windward of them because they had to turn back. It's that because the two of them are, as he, he starts the speech with, forehead to forehead I meet thee this third time, Moby Dick. Oh. So if the whale is going to leeward, and he, then his ship must go to windward to meet him. Wait a minute, I'm sorry. They Because they've been sailing with the wind, so leeward is is where they'd been going, but they go past Moby Dick. So now the, wa- the whale is to windward and empty sea is to leeward. So they turn, they're going back Okay, so when he says the white whale goes that way, he means the white whale is swimming in the direction yes. of the lee. However, that doesn't mean the w- currently the white whale is windward yes, of the ship. Yes, because they're going towards each other. Right, Head to it. head, forehead okay. to forehead. Uh, when, I, when I read the lines, leeward, the white whale goes that way, I misinterpreted that as meaning that the white whale is to the lee. But mm-hmm. the, the problem here is... I know that leeward and windward are two different directions, and I can think about them in that way, but they basically just mean east and west to me. <laughs> I, it's very hard for me to keep track of where what they mean in terms of where the ship is going. So yes. I'm, I'm glad that you're here to remind me that the fact that they have turned around and are sailing into the wind means that windward is in front of them. Yes. And that's where Moby Dick is. Yes. And this also obviously draws back, draws us back to uh, my favorite chapter, uh, the Leeward Shore. It's the Lee Shore. The Lee Shore, yes. It's the, that's the same meaning, but yes, it's yes. the Lee Shore. But um, because there's again this idea of all safety and all shelter is on land, all you know, this more palmy than the palms. So this is taking that initial uh, Leeward Nantucket shore and turning it into paradise, more palmy than the palms. But the more, the more uh, powerful, meaningful thing is to turn to the howling infinite, to turn up into the wind, because to turn down is to go the way Moby Dick goes, to be uh, driven before him, in a sense, back to sh- safety and land. Whereas to go up windward is to face him, to charge directly into the jaws and meet him forehead to forehead. So it's better to go up windward. Uh, you know, I'll point out that uh, Bulkington in the Lee Shore, who is the you know figure turning now away from the Lee Shore and out into the Howling Infinite, is described in terms of his you know apotheosis amid his ocean perishing. Yes, um, and uh, then you know he kind of at this point Ahab is like being lowered down from his little like mast perch and he kind of like observes the mast as he goes down and how mm-hmm. it's how it's it's weathered and cracked and has little bits of green moss in it and he kind of compares his aged body to the aged body of the ship um by heaven this dead wood has the better of my live flesh every way i can't compare with it and i've known some ships made of dead trees outlast the lives of men made of the most vital stuff of vital fathers and this, like, reflecting on, you know, the, the ship and his body and, like, whether it will outlive him, this brings him to thinking about Fadala's prophecy. Um, and uh, this thing about how Fadala said he would go before Ahab and be seen again. And Ahab is like, how can that be possible? If I can't, if he's at the bottom of the ocean now, how should I possibly ever see him again? 
Uh, yeah. so, Will I have eyes at the bottom of the sea, supposing I descend those endless stairs? Yeah, so he's kind of like, alright, this this must mean that Fadala correctly predicted his own death, but he didn't know what was going to happen with me. Um, yes, and I really... I like that Ahab now has this element of doubt. Previously, he's been insisting, oh, well, I mean, it's very Macbeth, as you've pointed out before. Previously, he's been insisting, well, I have these prophecies of how I might die, and none of them have come true yet. Oh, one of them's come true. Maybe I will descend those endless stairs, and that's how you'll go before, and I'll see you again. But really, how can that be? I can't, you know, at the very bottom of the depths, you know, in the darkness, I won't be able to see Fadala. So he... I think on some level, he's simply, he's working this out. He's going, okay, one of the prophecies has come true, but the next one's impossible. Yeah. And he's also, another point that he brings up, actually, I just wanted to mention is that all night I've been sailing from him wherever he did sink to. So it's like, okay, Fidala's body is at the bottom of the ocean, like, nautical miles away yes. from where we were last night so there's no way i'm gonna see that body again because it's it's gone something i will point out is he didn't uh i think and i think this is an intentional little irony of the text but they've turned back so yeah. he's now currently traveling towards where fadala was lost at sea that's true uh yeah <sighs> he doesn't but, think about that in this moment but yeah he also says um uh he says to the masthead, keep a good eye upon the whale the while I'm gone, which is just really cute. Yeah, Like, yeah. he has a, a good relationship with the Pequod. Not really anyone on the Pequod, but he has a good relationship with the Pequod. Yeah. Uh, we'll so talk tomorrow, nay, tonight, when the white whale lies down there, tied by head and tail. That is to say, when the white whale is tied by the side of our boat, having sperm extracted from him for trying out. Yeah. Can you imagine... Uh, I, anyways, just the idea of the trying out of the white whale is a wild thought. Yeah. So, uh, you know, they they uh, they lower the boats. Um, and uh, Ahab is, is standing in his new boat um, and almost about to be lowered over the side. And then he waves Starbuck over and has this little exchange with him. Do you want to do this as a dialogue? Or? Yeah, I could do this. Uh, uh, do you want Ahab or Starbuck? No, I'll be Starbuck. Sure, sure. Starbuck. Sir? For the third time, my soul's ship starts upon this voyage, Starbuck. Aye, sir, thou wilt have it so. Some ships sail from their ports, and ever afterwards are missing, Starbuck. Truth, sir. Saddest truth. Some men die at ebb tide, some at low water, some at the full of the flood. I feel now like a billow that's all one crested comb, Starbuck. I am old. Shake hands with me, man. Their hands met, their eyes fastened. Starbucks tears the glue. Tears? No. Well, we'll talk about that. We'll oh, talk okay. about that Sorry, later. <laughs> oh, my captain, my captain! Noble heart, go not, go not! See, it's a brave man that weeps. How great the agony of the persuasion, then! Lower away, cried Ahab, tossing the mate's arm from him. Stand by the crew. Cold, Ahab. That's yeah. really cold. And actually, there's one little bit after this. Uh, uh, there, in an instant, the boat was pulling round close under the stern. The sharks, the sharks, cried a voice from the low cabin window there. Oh, master, my master, come back. But Ahab heard nothing, for his own voice was high lifted then, and the boat leaped on. Poor Pip. Yeah, so Pip is also in this moment. Um, both Starbuck and Pip are urging Ahab to turn back right now. Yeah. Starbuck, uh, just out of like a, a sort of 
Starbuck out of, I think, you know, a totally, not totally rational, but like basically a, a normal human awareness that what Ahab is doing is incredibly dangerous. And then, you know, Pip has like a, like a premonition or, or maybe not premonition, but Pip, Pip can't see out the window to see the sharks, I don't think. Mm. He, but Pip knows the sharks are there. See, I, I think he may well have seen the sharks, because there is a low cabin window. He's looking yeah. down on the water okay, as that's Ahab fair. is lowered. I guess, there, but there's just a sense here, like, Starbuck is also looking over the side, right? Yeah. Um, like, But it's Pip who knows about this, like, shark omen, which we'll yeah. talk about the sharks. Yeah. But, um, yeah, and this is... <sighs> so tears. Right, so what I think is going on here is... Uh, Starbucks hand and I tear the bound the bind between him and Ahab. It's mm. Starbuck who looks away. I I really read this as their eyes fastened and Starbuck is like weeping and, and it's Starbucks his... tears are the glue bit yeah, yeah. binding their I, yeah, I guess I I really can't say which it is uh like grammatically. Um those are totally opposed meanings though. Yeah, they really are. Like, like it's their either... hands met, their eyes fastened also, great use of semicolons. Uh, Starbucks, Starbucks possessive, tears or tears the glue. I think you're right that that is ambiguous. Yeah, I, it, it, it's, it's, for me, it makes a little more sense to imagine that it's Starbuck breaking in this moment and looking away and be, because it seems to me like what Ahab wants here is for someone to, you know, shake hands with him and acknowledge him as he sets out on what he is finally acknowledging maybe his last journey you know he says this some ships sail from their ports and ever afterwards are missing so he's like he's basically saying like starbuck i might die yeah yeah you know he says some men die at ebb tide some at low water some at the full of the flood and i feel now like a billow that's all one crested comb and he what he's saying is you know i feel like this height this heightened uh energy this moment this that everything has come to this pinnacle and it's about to come crashing down all one crested comb and he also says that this is, you know, men can die at any point. Men yeah. can, this, the fact that I feel this way does not ensure my death, but it does not prevent it. Yeah. And, uh. I, so to, to make it, sorry, go on. Yeah. It's just that I know that this is a thing that's happened between Ahab and Starbuck several times before where like Starbuck cannot meet Ahab's gaze and he mm. can't, he can't kind of be this, uh, acknowledgement that Ahab really wants, because whenever it comes to that moment, Starbuck always kind of breaks emotionally and has to urge him to stop. Whereas I think what Ahab really wants is someone to witness what he's doing and 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 know of it and acknowledge it, but not stop it. See, I read this in the... I definitely read it as tears the glue, as in like the tears are the substance of the glue, uh, both because I think that the, the substance metaphors is clear, but also I think that... Um, I think this is the moment where Starbuck breaks, where he, he no longer turns aside or, like, manages to hold himself aloof or anything like that. He breaks down weeping and says, no, please don't go, you know, you know, noble heart, go not. Um, and it's, you know, it's a brave man that weeps. This is, this is a moment of connection, but Ahab is fully on his way. I think that's, to me, that heightens the tragedy of it, that there is this moment where Starbuck fully like starbuck does not say this is an evil meaning this is an evil purpose you know he doesn't make all of his moral arguments against it he says noble heart in the moment of ahab's greatest uh you know diabolism in a certain sense starbuck is venerating him as noble is seeing him as like for his tragedy and for his heroism 
and is begging him to turn back because, you know, for his own sake. And, but Ahab is too far gone at this point. Ahab will not be swerved. Yeah. So that, that's my interpretation. Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely present. I, I This is definitely one ambiguity in the text that I would not want to see, like, definitively resolved, you mm-hmm. know? Uh, I will say also, it occurs to me, that there's, a, there's a slight... Uh, Slight, maybe, like, grammatical argument for your perspective, because mine requires, uh, if, if tears is a verb, then it's in the present tense all of a sudden. Um, mm. Whereas uh, in your version, if it's a noun... Um, Th- there's no disjunct there. Yeah, the, the yeah, verb yeah. is... In your in your interpretation, um, the verb is... Uh, it's a... There's a word for this, but I can't... Or a phrase, but I can't remember it. But the implied verb is was... Mm-hmm. Starbucks tears or were Starbucks tears were the glue. Yeah, um, and it's just being left out because sometimes people, you can do that. Yeah, yeah, sometimes you can leave out the verb to be, um, especially in like nineteenth century English. <laughs> um, Excuse you, I do it all the time. Yeah, that's or, or like also there are also there are like uh, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like I guess dialects of modern English where that's very common actually, sure, sure. but. Just, like, in the way that you and I speak English, we probably... Sure, sure. I mostly meant in, like, academic writing. You can get away with it a lot. Oh, yeah. That's fair. That's fair. Um, Anyway, uh, yeah, so... um, So there are sharks. Yes, there are are sharks swimming all around Ahab's boat, and specifically Ahab's, and more so than any of the other boats that are setting out. Yes, and uh, this is something that um, really strains Ishmael's ability to say, well, actually, this is normal. Yeah, because he's he does say it is a thing not uncommonly happening to the whale boats in those swarming seas. The sharks at times apparently following them in the same prescient way that vultures hover over the banners of marching regiments in the east. So it's like, okay, the sharks are anticipating a fight with a whale and, and being able to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, but these were the first sharks that had been observed by the Pequod since the white whale had been first descried. Um, and, and they seem to follow that one boat without molesting the others. Yeah, and, and there's uh, just gotta yeah. get like one last bit of really disgusting racism in because uh, Ishmael does suggest that it's that it's that the the flesh of Ahab's rowers, uh, who are all Filipino, is like more appealing to sharks, which is. <sighs> You know. What a weird fucking thing. Yeah. Just, Anyways, and yeah. he says, a matter sometimes well known to affect them. Is it really, Ishmael? Of course there are legends on yeah, whaling I'm sure, ships I'm about, sure. like, what type of people taste best to sharks. Uh, but yeah, anyway, it does, <sighs> what whatever, uh, you know. And I, I do think that the, uh, racist as it is, I do think the, what if uh, Ahab's uh, rowers are more appealing to sharks... I think it's kind of a last-ditch attempt to stave off the obvious, like, yes, omen here, Yes, I, right? I 100% agree. Yeah, it, it's, it's like, oh god, maybe there's some sort of weird, like, physical meaning here, because I don't want to believe that it's just that the sharks are following Ahab's boat because Ahab's boat is, like, destined for blood. Yeah, I mean, it is, I should point out that this does move into the present day, present tense, because this is Ishmael giving a, like, this is how whaling works commentary. Um... But the, uh, there is definitely a thing that has happened many times in this book, which is, this looks like a weird and supernatural event, but really it's very normal for whaling. It's like a constant refrain of Ishmael's, and this is like one of his last desperate attempts at that. There's a few more in this chapter, but really strained at this point, right? Yeah. Um, and, and Starbuck, 
fully agrees with you and me that like <laughs> this is obviously a fucking omen. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so remember, Ahab's position on omens is sure they happen, but I don't fucking care. Like he he's like you know omens are a sign of you know failing to see the actual underlying things and reading the surfaces. Um, but Starbuck has been reading a lot of omens recently. Yes, and uh, now it's Starbuck's turn to give kind of a, a weird little speech. Um, and, and I think this is very interesting in terms of, like, mm-hmm. what's going on here for Starbucks' character and even, like, what's yeah. happening in Starbucks' soul. Do we want to read it, then? Yeah, I'd kind of like to Go read it. Go ahead. This. Heart of wrought steel, murmured Starbuck, gazing over the side and following with his eyes the receding boat. Canst thou yet ring boldly to that sight? Lowering thy keel among ravening sharks and followed by them, open-mouthed to the chase, and this the critical third day. For when three days flow together in one continuous intense pursuit, be sure the first is the morning, the second the noon, and the third the evening, and the end of that thing, be that end what it may. Oh, my God, what is this that shoots through me and leaves me so deadly calm yet expectant, fixed at the top of a shutter? Future things swim before me as in empty outlines and skeletons. All the past is somehow grown dim. Mary, girl, thou fadest in pale glories behind me. Boy, I seem to see but thy eyes grown wondrous blue. Strangest problems of life seem clearing, but clouds sweep between. Is my journey's end coming? My legs feel faint, like his who has footed it all day. Feel thy heart. Beats it yet? Stir thyself, Starbuck. Stave it off. Move, move. Speak aloud. Masthead there. See ye my boy's hand on the hill? Crazed. Aloft there. Keep thy keenest eye upon the boats. Mark well the whale. Ho, again, drive off that hawk. See, he pecks, he tears the vein. Pointing to the red flag flying at the main truck. Ha, he soars away with it. Where's the old man now? Seest thou that sight, O Ahab? Shudder, shudder. Uh, so he is, like... He's having a breakdown. Yeah, he's having a breakdown. He is... the, The past, like, everything that he knows and remembers is becoming dim to him, and he's seeing, like, vague visions of the future. He's seeing, I think, when he says... He seems to see his the the eyes of his son grown wondrous blue. I think he's seeing the ocean, like as see. I thought it was like as they receded. There's that dis that bluing of distance that occurs when a thing recedes. Specifically, he says, "Mary girl, thou fadest in pale glories behind me. Boy, I seem to see, but thy eyes grown wondrous blue." So there's this sense of the two of them like receding into the sky in the distance. Yeah, that makes sense. But he's also like he has on some of a literally hallucinating vague visions of his family because he's you know at the end at the end of this paragraph he's like all right walk it off like just do your job move speak speak aloud aloud, talk to the men but as he's trying to do that he says this see ye my boy's hand on the hill thing like he's talking to the masthead but he's like do you see what i'm seeing my son like waving because remember he notes that his uh his wife takes their son down to the um the hill uh in Nantucket where they can see out over the um over the water yes and uh that you know so he's saying can you you know see this thing that he looks for when he returns by boat yeah and then he he realizes he says crazed which is i think him being like oh god like what did i just say yeah, that doesn't absolutely. make any sense uh, and then he manages to say the actual thing he's trying to say. Yes. Um, uh, but even, you know, even once he's kind of like mastered himself and managed to stop speaking of his visions, 
uh, even then, like, just the literal physical reality that he's seeing won't let him, like, move past his sense of terror because at this point, like, a seahawk uh, has, like, pecked the flag off of the mainmast. Yeah, it's torn it away. Like, I'm assuming it, like, seized it in claws and just flew off. Like, you know, you know, you see eagles in, um, in coats of arms or, like, uh, like, seals and they're always, like, clutching a flag in one claw. Yeah, I'm, yeah. And, uh, you know, that, uh... Omen? Yeah, that makes him shudder. Yeah. Um, and, and that is, uh, that is what was happening earlier in the paragraph, too. He was fixed at the top of a shutter. Like, he is just in a state of, like, terror, and he can't escape it. Yes. Um. Every, everything that he has most dreaded is now coming to pass and occurring, and he is transfixed. Yes. Um. <sighs> Meanwhile, uh, the boat had not gone very far. <laughs> yeah. Um, he, uh, th- there's a signal. The, someone on the mastheads gives Ahab, like, a visual signal, a downward-pointed arm, meaning the whale has sounded. Uh, so now they are in that moment that has been described often before of, like, just everyone silently waiting for the whale to reappear. Mm-hmm. But I'll note that normally this uh, sounding, I think it lasts like an hour for Moby Dick. There's a... Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, I know that um, Ahab in the past has like uh, counted it out to the hour. Yes, and has counted out precisely. He knows Moby Dick's soundings precisely, but that's not actually what happens. He has time to say, um, you know, uh, drive, drive in your nails, oh you waves, to the uttermost heads, drive them in. You but strike a thing without a lid, and no coffin and no hearse can be mine, and hemp only can kill me. Ha! Ha! So Ahab is, like, taking heart in the prophecies now that he can only be killed by hemp, by hanging. So he cannot die here. He's on the water. The whale is sounded. And then something happens that is not expected. Yeah, um... Did you want to... You mentioned that you really loved this Yeah, uh, I think this is just an excellent paragraph. Suddenly the waters around them slowly swelled in broad circles, then quickly upheaved as if sideways sliding from a submerged berg of ice, swiftly rising to the surface. A low rumbling sound was heard, a subterraneous hum, and then all held their breaths, as, bedraggled with trailing ropes and harpoons and lances, a vast form shot lengthwise, but obliquely, from the sea. Shrouded in a thin, drooping veil of mist, it hovered for a moment in the rainbowed air, and then fell swamping back into the deep. Crushed thirty feet upwards, the waters flashed for an instant like heaps of fountains, then brokenly sank in a shower of flakes, leaving the circling surface creamed like new milk round the marble trunk of the whale. And what I think is just masterful about this paragraph is what's being described here is Moby Dick, like, I think, breaching, right? Yeah, Um, yeah. At the very least, Moby Dick, like, shooting out of the water, uh, you know, lengthwise but obliquely, and then going back in. Yeah, but, and not not diving again, but the Moby Dick is now on the surface. Yes, and I think that, but but the way this, the paragraph is structured, we're not told this is Moby Dick, this is the whale, we're told about uh, something. I mean, we're not even given a noun for the thing that is emerging. It's just the waters swelled, the waters upheaved, there was a low rumbling sound, a, a hum, and then like... A vast at, form. Yeah, at, it, close to the end of the second sentence, close to halfway through the paragraph, we get nothing more specific than a vast form. 
it hovered for a moment. And it's not until literally the last word of the paragraph that we get told it's the whale. And like, you know, I'm not saying I don't think this is necessarily meant to literally be a surprise. I think if you're reading this book and paying attention, it's like, well, what would be emer- yeah. what would be emerging from the water bedraggled with trailing ropes and so on? You can you'll be able to figure it out as you're reading, but but there is a real sense of suspense being created here. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that also something that isn't really remarked on, I think, in the text is that this is not what's supposed to happen. Moby Dick has not been sounded for long enough. Yeah, and I think that that's part of what's being created with this effect is that I think the people in the boats are like not sure what's happening at first. Even though, even though you'd think that they would recognize Moby Dick, I think because they don't expect Moby Dick at this point. It is just kind of like, what is this thing? What is coming out of the water? Um, it's a moment of, of estrangement. Yeah. Yeah, and I I really like how it's sort of this reply to Ahab's confidence and certainty is that suddenly things are disrupted and the chase is on when it's unexpected. And yeah, there's this like immense and quite beautiful passage of this sort of explosion of Moby Dick into their world. Yeah, and, 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 yeah, it is also just, like, a very beautiful paragraph in the way that it describes, like, the motion of the water. Um, there's this, there's, uh, there's a, an intense alliteration in that first, uh, sentence. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's great. Um, and obviously they are, uh, you know, going to attack the whale. Yes. Um, now it's, like, the real kind of, uh, frenzy of the chase. Well, not just the chase, uh. You know, um, give way, cried Ahab to the oarsmen, and the boats darted forward to the attack, but maddened by yesterday's fresh irons that corroded in him, Moby Dick seemed combinedly possessed by all the angels that fell from heaven. So, first of all, Moby Dick is explicitly the, like, host of fallen angels here. Yes. Or, you know, seemed, but whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um. He is, he is explicitly, you know, satanic in this moment. Yes. Um, and, uh, yeah, he, uh, as, as has been Moby Dick's practice throughout this chase, he, like, um, knocks two boats apart from each other, uh, specifically the two mates' boats, so Stub and Flask's boats are here. Yeah, yeah, flailed them apart, spilling out the irons and lances from the two mates' boats, and dashing in one side of the upper part of their bows, but leaving Ahab's almost without a scar. And two things here. One, yes, both of the, both of the mates' boats are not just, like, disrupted but like more or less taken out of the chase immediately yeah um but secondly almost without a scar is a fascinating uh scent uh clause there like what's the almost is it that like the whale bumps the boat but doesn't really damage it is it that like it's left rocking but untouched it's it's an ambiguity that i wouldn't have expected yeah uh, and, you know, in this moment, as everyone's trying to cope with this whale attack, um, <laughs> while Dagoo and Queequeg were stopping the strained planks, which, by the way, I think that's, like, a slightly interesting that Queequeg is here. This kind of, uh, I think mentioning that Queequeg is here is a little bit of a, a kind of hint that Starbucks crew have been, like, reassigned. Yeah, yeah, we've, um, we've generally known that. Um, I think it was mentioned that, you know, his... The whaleboat still went out, and Starbuck was Starbuck has been left on the ship, but there's enough crews that they need to have people going out. Right. Well, I guess, like, specifically, like, normally speaking, the two uh, harpooners 
on the two mates' boats, Stubb and yeah. Flask's boats, would be Dagu and Tashtiko. Yes. Um. So n- noting that actually Queequeg is on one of those mates' boats right mm-hmm. now um, is, I think, a way of kind of like just pointing out to us that Starbucks crew have been like reassigned. Yeah, they're still heading out even if Starbucks not. Exactly. And mm-hmm. and that specifically maybe there's some sense of like I think maybe there's an idea that Starbucks crew were like the best because he was like the first mate. Yeah. yeah I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I think it's just we get to see Queequeg at this point. Like yeah, I, yeah, I think yeah. it's just you know Well, I just think present. this has some relevance to uh the one oarsman who doesn't get taken up. Mm, yeah, Cause, yeah, cause yeah. We well, were, yeah, yeah, yeah. We were talking previously I think during previous parts of the chase, I said something about how, like, Ishmael is on Starbucks' boat, so we know he has to be watching all this from the ship. Uh, but now we see Starbucks' crew. Okay, yeah, now I, 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 see what, I see what you're getting at. Anyway. Um, so, but while that's going on, uh, this, like, horrible thing happens where the, uh, the whale, as he's swimming past them, turns and shows one of his flanks, and... This allows everyone to see this, like, horrible apparition uh, that... You want to read the sentence? Yeah. Lashed round and round to the fish's back, pinioned in the turns upon turns in which, during the past night, the whale had reeled the involutions of the lines around him, the half-torn body of the Parsi was seen. His sable raiment frayed to shreds, his distended eyes turned full upon old Ahab. The harpoon dropped from his hand. So... Ahab has this moment of recognition of the body of um, Fidala. Yes, and and this is, you know, this is the fulfillment of Fidala's prophecy that Ahab will see him again. This is yes, how... Yes, he will go before, but then you will see me once again. That This is the, the solution to the puzzle of, like, how is Fidala's body going to resurface, even though it was drowned and so far from the ship, it was attached to Moby Dick. Yes, it's gothic. It's incredibly gothic. Oh, yeah. And also, more than that, befooled, befooled. Aye, <gasps> Parsi, I see thee again. Aye, and thou goest before. And this, this then is the hearse that thou didst promise. But I hold thee to the last letter of thy word. Where is the second hearse? So he has this moment of like, okay, the prophecies are coming true. This is the hearse not made by human hands. Yeah. That is Moby Dick himself carrying Fadala's body. But where is the second hearse? You promised me two. And, like, the Macbeth energy is so intense here. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's absolutely... Here is the, like, the three things that must occur. Okay, one and two have happened, but I haven't seen three yet. I still have hope. Yeah. Um, and uh, he, you know... Uh, he, he, you know, just orders all the men to, like, get get to work on, like... Fixing the boats as much as you can, or if not, like, get back to my boat. Well, the way he said it is, so he's, he's talking to the mates here. He's telling them, you know, uh, to stub and flask, if you can fix those boats, you know, sail with them. Otherwise, you know, just, just, if you can fix those boats, come and help in the chase. If you can't, return to the ship. And what he says about that is, if not, Ahab is enough to die. Um, so he's declaring... You know, he's recognizing that this may be his death, but he doesn't need Stub and Flask to follow him in this. This is his vendetta. Except, also... <laughs> sorry, just it's a really grim joke. He says, Ahab is enough to die. Down, men! The first thing that but offers to jump from this boat I stand in, that thing I harpoon. So his crew were like, Ahab is enough to die? I'm leaving? <laughs> like, I... Oh, Ahab's enough to die. Have fun! And Ahab's gonna be like, nope, not you. 
I will nail you to this boat. Yeah, ye are not other men, but my arms and my legs, and so obey me. Which is like, all right, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Ahab is enough to die. Right now, you're all Ahab. Yes. Um, yeah, and I guess I actually, we were a little unclear about this, but what he's specifically telling Stubb and Flask, and presumably their boat's crews to do, is to go back to the ship in order yes, to repair yes. the boats. Those boats are useless now. Repair them if you can in time, and return to me. And so you can't repair them on the sea once they've like, yeah, been yeah. staved like that. Sorry, stove like that. So uh, Stubb and Flask are going to pull their boats back to the um, the Peckwad and get pull- taken up. And hopefully, if they can repair them in time to come fight Moby Dick, which seems unlikely, then, you know, sure, do that. But for now, Ahab's one boat is enough to stand against Moby Dick. Yeah, yeah. Um, God, I feel so bad for his crew, though. Yeah. Also, they are clearly out of extra boats at this point. Oh, yeah, no, they're... They've been, like, desperately repairing boats for a while now, because Moby Dick's just chewing them up. Yeah. Not literally. Oh, literally! One time, yeah, literally! No, yeah, he that, bit through a boat! That did happen. Ah. <laughs> uh. Um, so, you know, uh, now, uh, Moby Dick is just, uh, swimming steadily forward again, um. Yep, surging away from them. Uh, he seemed swimming with his utmost velocity, and now only intent upon pursuing his own straight path in the sea. Um, so, he's, uh... I love the description. Bent as if bent upon escaping with the corpse he bore, like Grand Theft Fidala. God, yeah, and he is uh, Moby Dick is continuing in the like lure, lure direction. direction that he was this whole time, and now now the ship's windward course would actually be carrying it away from Moby Dick if it continues yes. in that direction. And Starbuck is like. Oh, Ahab, not too late is it, even now, the third day to desist. See, Moby Dick seeks thee not. It is thou, thou that madly seekest him. Yeah. And, you know, he's he's like, this vendetta, Moby Dick does not hate you. You know, he ate your leg, but he doesn't hate you. Why do you hate him? There's this certain sense of like, well, Starbuck, I, yes, Ahab can give up and have lost and have lost a leg to Moby Dick who will be satisfied with that. But I don't think you're really getting it. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's not that he was saying, yes, Moby Dick is hunting me, and one or both of us must die. No, it has always been Ahab hunting Moby Dick. I just, I see the point that he's making here. I just think that on some level it is, again, it's failing to reckon with the actual reasons Ahab is hunting Moby Dick. Yeah, no, I think that's true. But it's important to make it clear that Ahab is choosing this. Yes. Uh, And, uh, you know... So, obviously, well, yeah, obviously, as Ahab would do at this point, the boat, you know, heads to leeward to follow Moby Dick, and he he uh, hails uh, Starbuck to do, basically, the to turn the ship around and follow yes. the boat. Um, and, uh, you know, everyone is uh, busy on the ship, uh, doing all the things that it would make sense for them to be doing mm-hmm. right now. Yeah, Tashtigo, Queequeg, and Dagu, so the, the harpeneers, and specifically the pagan harpeneers, as we've been told many times, uh, go up to the three mastheads to keep an eye on the chase. The um, the boats are being hammered and, and like, fixed. Uh, Stub and Flask can be seen through the portholes as he sped, busying themselves on deck among bundles of new irons and lances. As he saw all this, as he heard the hammers and the broken boats, Far other hammers seemed driving a nail into his heart. So all of the Pequod is full of, like, the work of arraying it to face whales. It's like the Pequod is 
not like frozen or you know the people on it are not stuck in horror staring at the they're all going about the work of whale hunting the work of the pequod um even uh to the point of um uh it, ahab calls out to tashtigo and says my my flag is gone go up and nail another one to the mast yeah yeah um uh so nails and hammers become this really intense symbolism for like a paragraph yeah yeah like they're you know carpentry the smith these all these these are not new categories of symbolism but the nail into the heart and the nail of uh coffin nails which he compared the waves to and the boat to a coffin but it's an open one with no lid um are now sort of being brought to bear and i really on the one hand, I really think that this is like, you know, kind of a last second symbolic assemblage. But on the other hand, I really respect Haw uh, not Hawthorne, Melville for like being willing to be like, yeah, this needs its own symbol here at the very final moment. We need to bring in a new thing and it's connected to other things. It works. But I'm also just like, this is the last chapter of the book. You have so much symbolism to draw on and you're like, hammers and nails. Got it. <laughs> yeah uh and uh they they um they start closing on moby dick who does seem to be swimming a little bit more slowly uh um, whether whether fagged by the three days running chase and the resistance to his swimming in the knotted hamper he bore or whether there is some latent deceitfulness and malice in him so there's this idea of like on the one hand it might just be that the whale is actually flagging and tired and is is more vulnerable but on the other hand, it might be a trick. Yes. Um, <sighs> and uh, as as Ahab's boat is drawing near to the whale, uh, the sharks are actually, like, biting chunks out of the oars. Yes, they're, um, show uh, that the sharks are so intensely following them and swarming that, yeah, they're biting chunks out of the oars. Yeah, and... and the oars uh, are, are not just, like getting ragged but the crew are actually worried that the oars are running out yeah ahab tells everyone don't worry about it uh those teeth but give new rowlocks to your oars like oh they're actually making it easier to to draw the yeah i love his line pull on tis the better rest the shark's jaw than the yielding water like you can get more uh like it's it be like you can get more force in your row if you stick it into a shark because it's heavier and more solid and it's just like <laughs> What the fuck, Ahab? That is that is the kind of high spirits that he often has where he, like, makes jokes that are incredibly grim and terrifying. Yeah, and uh, the response to that is, But at every bite, sir, the thin blades grow smaller and smaller. Literally, by the time we get to this whale, we're not going to have any oars to row with. <laughs> and he's like, they will last long enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know... He does have this moment of who can tell whether the sharks swim to feast on the whale or on Ahab, uh, but pull on, you know. Um, and so he, you know, he goes up to the front of the boat. He gives the helm to a uh, an or to an oarsman, and uh, now the craft is parallel with the white whale, ranging along alongside him. Uh, and the whale seems strangely oblivious of its advanced, as the whale sometimes will. And I have to say, again, there's these moments of Ishmael popping in to say, this is normal, this is how whaling is, this is, there's nothing inherently supernatural about the events here, 
even though they seem strange, difficult to understand, and terrifying. Yeah, um, and, you know, in this moment where they're drawing close and, the, and uh, Moby Dick doesn't seem conscious of them, uh, Ahab darts his iron. Uh, this is the Ahab firing off his whale lance. He darted his fierce iron and his far fiercer curse into the hated whale. Uh, and it does seem to hit the mark. Yeah, as both steel and curse sank to the socket as if sucked into a morass, Moby Dick sideways writhed, spasmodically rolled his nigh flank against the bow, and without staving a hole in it, so suddenly canted the boat over, that had it not been for the elevated part of the gunwale to which he then clung, Ahab would once more have been tossed into the sea. So, the whale does not manage to damage the boat here. Moby Dick is struck, it sinks to the socket, he clearly, there is a pain. Ahab has struck the whale, and, you know, he has, he has done so before, but previously, when he managed to harpoon Moby Dick, it mostly seemed to make uh, Moby Dick angry, right? But here, yeah. there's a clear pain. I think this is, to some extent, the distinction between the harpoon and the lance, because, I mean, obviously, harpooning the whale, like, is an attack and, like, causes it pain, probably. Mm. But the harpoon is not the attack that is supposed to kill the whale. Yes. It's the... It, it, the purpose of the harpoon is to allow you to get close to the whale and follow it. See, um, I think this is another, um, I think this is a harpoon, though, because he has a line. I mean, the whale lances also have lines on them, don't they? No, like, I thought, no, I think the whale, the harpoon has the line. I think the whale lances are just, like, hurled. But what about the time that we've heard about earlier in this book where somebody was, like, up close on a whale and just, like, lancing it and pulling his lance back and lancing it again? Mm, you're right. They do. They must have a line for you to pull them back. So yes, there is a line even on the lances, not just on the harpoons. But a number of these lines, like, stick. Yeah, it's hard to say, I guess. I, I just think that this is the moment... Like, this is also the, the, we've talked about the moment when the um, the captain or the mate of the ship goes up into the yeah, bow. Yeah. I think that's the darting the lance moment. Yes, but we also know he darted the harpoon because he um, he had it special forged for him, remember? But but he already did that. Yes, what, what I'm saying is that I think that Ahab's doing all the throwing here. He is his own harpooner. No, that's definitely true. I, I'm just saying that I think, I think now is not the moment of fastening into the whale. They are fast. I think now is the moment of I don't think they are fast because previously the whale pulled away they've been the only harpoon that this is the first darting of the day they have not been tied to the whale okay yeah i guess you're right um i guess it is uh, sort of unclear um but the the important thing is that this this hit both like strikes moby dick effectively yes. and also makes them fast Yes. Um, both of those things happen here. Yeah, and also, Moby Dick knocks the boat, and uh, Ahab does not fall out. Presumably his little, like, carved hole for his uh, peg is helping him stay in. But also, uh, as it was, three of the oarsmen, who foreknew not the precise instant of the dart, and were therefore unprepared for his effects, these were flung out. And I have to say, that's that's slightly like... Ahab didn't say anything, he just threw, and then that means that when they all, you know, when the immediate effects happen, they were all flung overboard. There's a certain sense of, like, come on. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's like, did you really expect anything different? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and, and three of the oarsmen are, are flung out of the boat, and two of them manage to, uh, immediately clutch the gunnel again and get themselves back in the boat, but there's one man who just 
falls astern. Helplessly dropping astern, but still afloat and swimming. So one of Ahab's crew has been lost, but the rest are all back in, and he's prepared to go forward. And immediately the um, the narrative continues on to uh, the motion of the white whale, because almost simultaneously, with a mighty volition of ungraduated, instantaneous swiftness, the white whale darted through the weltering sea. But then Ahab cried out to the steersman to take new turns with the line and hold it so, and commanded the crew to turn round on their seats and tow the boat up to the mark. The moment the treacherous line felt that double strain and tug, it snapped in the empty air. So Ahab calls for them to row against the motion of the whale to slow Moby Dick down with the harpoon. Yes. And the line snaps. Yes. And, uh... Ahab's response is is interesting. Sorry, what? Is that what... When, when When he says, commanded the crew to turn round on their seats and tow the boat up to the mark... So that that means you're you're reading that as meaning like pulling. well he specifically says the moment the treacherous line felt that double strain and tug double as in being pulled from both ends oh okay yeah I guess I'm just confused by what does tow the boat up to the mark literally mean I genuinely don't know in this context like I would have thought from my initial reading that it was you know get us up close to the uh, whale again but he's caused them to turn round in their seats after having both been sailing in the same direction being sailing yeah. in the same direction as Moby Dick he's now calling for them to turn round and uh, row back and yeah no i think you're right that that he is swimming in the opposite direction from Moby Dick at this point i'm just not totally sure like what the purpose of that is but anyway it does happen and it breaks the line and this moment is when Ahab cracks and like well he, he has an experience yeah well I think that this is the moment that he alluded to in the past where he was like, before I die, you'll see me crack. Oh, you're right. And you'll hear me crack. Yes, he says, what breaks in me? Some sinew cracks. Tis whole again. Oars, oars, burst in upon him. So yes, the the sound of the line snapping, he thinks of as like a sinew of his own body snapping. Yes. And and he he immediately, you know, he says, tis whole again, meaning like, I'm I'm not actually cracked. I'm fine. Yeah, yeah. but then, uh, then the Moby Dick, then the Moby Dick, geez, <laughs> uh, then Moby Dick, uh, turns around, uh, presumably to attack the boat. Yes, because hearing the tremendous rush of the sea crashing boat, so, um, uh, hearing the boats, I get, what I think is happening is the boat, like, jerks and, like, smashes against the water because that line being released means it, like, pops forward. Yeah, so Moby Dick seems to be turning to attack the boat. However, he sees the ship and seemingly seeing in it the source of all his persecutions, bethinking it it may be a larger and nobler foe. Of a sudden he bore down upon its advancing prow, smiting his jaws amid fiery showers of foam. And there's so much going on there. Yeah, so Moby Dick decides to attack the ship instead of the boat. And this like, really affects Ahab. Yes, it does. But not just that. Think think about the parallel here. Seemingly seeing in it the source of all his persecutions. Yeah. That's what Ahab has been doing with Moby Dick the entire novel. He sees in Ahab that subtle demonism. Yeah, he sees in Moby Dick. Sorry, he, yes, he sees it. Well, no, what I mean is Moby Dick sees in 
well, I suppose not Ahab, in the Pequod, the source of all his woes. He sees the persecutions against him in the ship. And so there's this sense in which now Ahab and Moby Dick have been paralleled, that Ahab, who has seen in Moby Dick the subtle demonism in the world, is not being regarded by Moby Dick as the source of his woes, but rather the Pequod is. And I think that, on the one hand, this is, this is an interpretation of Moby Dick that I think literally humanizes him. It says, okay, that it's not maybe a blind and unthinking brute, but a thinking being that is not like this godlike force, that the reason Ishmael gives for why Moby Dick would turn upon the Pequod in particular is, oh, it's larger. Oh, it, 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 you know, it appears to be the source of his persecutions. He's understanding the world in a way similar to Ahab, where he's determined that this is his enemy. But I think that you can also read this very clearly as malice. Yeah. Very clearly as, like, I mean, especially given how Ahab takes it. Yeah, I, I, yes. I, I want to, oh, I do want to get to Ahab's reaction, but I want to keep talking, actually, about Moby Dick just in this paragraph, because I yeah. think that, like, okay, there is the malice interpretation, which is kind of, I think, almost the one that, um, that Ishmael is a little bit pushing to the side, right? Yes, he's constantly pushing that aside in this chapter, I think because the malice is so obvious. Yeah, but but yeah, so you can think of it as, like, Moby Dick wants to hurt Ahab, and he knows on some level that sinking the ship will actually hurt Ahab, like, even more and than also, directly attacking Ahab. And even apart from Ahab, destroying the ship will do far more, like... Like, Ahab has said, you know, only Ahab need die. Except for you guys, but only Ahab need die. And now Moby Dick is going to turn and attack those who are not... They have not managed to dart a single harpoon against him today. Yes. No one in the ship has managed to even touch on uh, Moby Dick. But Moby Dick is turning upon it. Yes. Uh, so in some sense, there's, like, a very obvious, like... If what Moby Dick wants to do is is enact, like, the most... Evil. The most evil. The most, like death and destruction on the crew of the Pequod, obviously attacking the ship itself is like a, a bigger target. And it, it you know, if, if the ship is, is sunk, then the boats can't recover. Um, yeah. However, I also think it's interesting. The, the interpretation that is actually highlighted in the text that Ishmael is suggesting mm -hmm. in that interpretation, Moby Dick is actually a little bit like, misguided yeah that, that's what i meant by the the comparison to ahab is this yeah. idea of moby dick has now decided that this one thing is the source of of his woes but is not actually correctly determining that one thing and is so lashing out yes because i mean first of all i think you could say that just in general moby dick's persecutions in the sense of like ships attacking him in general mm -hmm. that is something that there is no particular agent he could attack for that yeah but i also think turns out capitalism is bodiless as an object yeah yeah but act but you know very much embodied as an agent but also i think that if uh if even if we are, are focusing in on the pequot itself as the as the producing the persecutions the pequot is the agent ahab is the principal mm -hmm. moby dick is seeing the like sort of large like kind of heroic dangerous object and being like this is the thing that attacks me this is what i'm going to go after but he's in some sense missing the will the will that animates it yes um and like i think there is a certain sense in which if moby dick had sunk the pequod but left ahab alone and alive 
the the force that seeks revenge on Moby Dick would have come back. Yeah, right? a, like that is what happened before. <laughs> Moby Dick experiencing a horror movie. <laughs> but um, uh, so yeah, th- this idea on some level that Moby Dick sees the larger and nobler foe and thinks of that as the thing to attack. I think there's an implication almost that that is what Ahab has done here is that he's fixated on the white whale as the thing he needs to take revenge on when actually he's missing, you know, yeah, the principle. I mean, this is, this is the, you know, ongoing question of the book. Is Ahab correct in his, you know, in his quest? Is there, you know, and on some level there's the question of, well, he often considers the possibility that he is not, in fact, reforming the world by destroying the white whale. But the white whale does symbolize and embodies and takes on this uh, position. So there is a real reason for hunting the whale in his mind that he's, you know, he's expressed. But here it's being presented as maybe a pure misunderstanding, a pure uh, misattribution, because that is that is one of the most popular, like, critical takes on Moby Dick as a whole, that Ahab is fundamentally misunderstanding the world and that that is the point of the text. And it is certainly something that the text raises. And I want to get to that again after we actually finish the chapter because I, and because I think there's some really interesting stuff there. Yeah. But uh, in any case, um, Ahab takes it badly, as you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Ahab staggered. His hand smote his forehead. I grow blind. Hands stretch out before me that I may yet grope my way. Is tonight. So he, like, he can't see. And, and I think it's because the sight of what is happening right now is so horrible to him. Because he realizes that if Moby Dick uh, sinks the Pequod, as it seems like he is now trying to do, as Moby Dick has been known to do, right? Yes. Maliciously sink yes. ships. In fact, did to his previous ship. Yeah. Or no, no, he was he wasn't picked up by another ship. the The ship was fine. The boats destroyed, right? I think. In uh, the, I, I can't remember. I think that Ahab survived by floating on a piece of wood. Mm, yeah, that Im- that implies that the ship was destroyed. Yes. Anyway, um, yeah, this is this is a disaster for Ahab. Like, even if there is this sense that we've talked about, where like actually maybe Moby Dick is mistaking his uh, yeah his opponent. Like, it's it still... is still a far more malicious act than just killing Ahab and moving on. Yes, exactly. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the oarsmen, like, call out to him, the whale, the ship, uh, pointing out the obvious thing that Ahab can't see, and then he kind of is, recognizes what's happening, and he, uh, you know, makes, like, a desperate last-ditch effort. Uh, Yeah. Uh, dash on, my men, will ye not save my ship? But the, um... Remember, he was almost without a scar, and it was struck but not destroyed, but now the before whale-smitten bow ends of two planks burst through, and in an instant almost the temporarily disabled boat lay nearly level with the waves, its half-waiting, splashing crew trying hard to stop the gap and bail out the pouring water. So that previous knock, which supposedly was, you know, simply thrashing and helpless and did nothing, has now prevented Ahab from intervening as the Pequod is destroyed— and this, I really like that, because if you want to read a malicious intelligence or, like, a, a controlling force into this, here it is. Yes, absolutely. Also, I like it just because I really, um, personally, I really enjoy swamped boats as, like, a, just, I find them really aesthetically interesting, and also they're interesting to be in and deal with. So, like, this moment where the boat is, like, low to the waterline has a lot of, kind of symbolic value to me. It's like when you capsize a canoe. 
Sure. I just um, thought I'd mention that. And uh, on on the Pequod, uh, everyone is kind of realizing how how fucked they are. For that one beholding instant, uh, and I love the. There's this image of like this frozen moment. Tashtigo like is frozen with hammer up and flag in hand up at the masthead, um, and uh, Starbuck and Stubbs standing upon the bowstrit beneath see the oncoming whale. Yeah, and they both have their little like reactions to this um uh where they, where they both kind of recognize i think that they might be about to die and have I, yeah have their respective like characteristic reactions to it um yeah god starbuck is um starbuck is desperately trying to act even in the face of this inevitable death the whale the whale up helm up helm oh all ye sweet powers of air now hug me close let not starbuck die if die he must in a woman's fainting fit up helm i say you fools the jaw the jaw yeah and uh is this the end of all my bursting prayers all my lifelong fidelities oh ahab ahab lo thy work so his He's, like, both crying out to God, saying, is this how I am, you know, repaid for my lifelong faith? And crying out to Ahab, saying, this is your doing. Yes. And, uh, yeah, um, this Uh, is, yeah. uh, His last two lines, actually, are also fantastic. Yeah. Oh, his unappeasable brow drives on towards one whose duty tells him he cannot depart. My God, stand by me now. And I... I think what he literally means here is his unappeasable brow is Moby Dick's drives yes. on towards one. The one is Starbucks. Starbucks duty tells him he cannot depart. Yes. Starbuck can't like jump in a boat and row away yeah, from here yeah, as yeah. fast as possible. He can't abandon ship. Yes. Um, but I also think that like, there is an interesting, like, we have heard a lot about, about Ahab's brow. Yeah. Ahab's unappeasable brow. Yes. Um, and, uh, we have also heard a lot about Ahab's sort of sense that he can't turn back. Yes. Um, and so I, I think, like, that both of those things are kind of present in this Yeah, yeah, And, uh, can I do stub? Yeah, sure. Stand not by me, but stand under me, whoever you are that will now help stub. For stub too sticks here. I grin at thee, thou grinning whale. Whoever helped Stubb, or kept Stubb awake, but Stubb's own unwinking eye. And now poor Stubb goes to bed upon a mattress that is all too soft, would it were stuffed with brushwood. I grin at thee, thou grinning whale. Look ye, sun, moon, and stars. I call ye assassins of as good a fellow as ever spouted up his ghost. For all that, I would yet ring glasses with ye, would ye but hand the cup. Oh, 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 thou grinning whale, but there'll be plenty of gulping soon. Why fly ye not, O Ahab? For me... Off shoes and jacket to it. Let Stubb die in his drawers. A most moldy and over-salted death, though. Cherries, cherries, cherries. Oh, Flask, for one red cherry or we die. And Flask even gets his little tiny speech. Yeah, yeah. Cherries? I only wish that we were where they grow. Oh, Stubb, I hope my poor mother's drawn my part pay ere this. If not, few coppers will now come to her, for the voyage is up. Yes, yeah, so 
Starbuck has this moment of religious crisis that has been building and building and building, and now he stands, but he calls out to God, you know, basically, why hast thou forsaken me? Mm -hmm. And Stubb says, you know, that's about what I expected of God. You know, yeah. Stubb has, has never had faith in anything. It, you know, he only has himself in his good humor, and his response is, to, like, he literally, like, throws off his jacket and shoes. He undresses because he can see the end is coming. Um, and, you know, basically says, you know, you know, the world has killed me, you know, the stars and plants, the, the forces of the world have killed me, but I don't hold it against you. I would still, you know, if you would still stoop to, uh, to drink with me, I'd drink with you. And he's focusing on, like, enjoyment and his, his good humor at the last. Yeah, but one red cherry, he's asking for, like, one little bit of, like, earthly pleasure. Yeah. Um. <sighs> Fearless as fire. Yeah, as yeah. mechanical. Yeah, yeah, and I and I love the bit about uh, going to bed upon a mattress that is all too soft, like obviously the water. Yeah. Uh, and if only it were stuffed with brushwood. That is, like, if only there was a lot of wood in this water. <laughs> if only there was something that would, you know, float. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then, of course, like, Flask's take is literally like, well, yeah, I wish I was on land in a cherry orchard right now. Because then I wouldn't die. I, I hope my mother has been, like, uh, cashing in my insurance policy. <laughs> yeah, no, it's... Uh, the... As much as Stubb is fearless as fire and as mechanical, Flask is even more so. Yes. Um, uh, and, and, and it's and, also notable that Flask gets like a third the length of the line that Stubb or Starbuck get. Yeah, he just doesn't have that much to say. He's no, never he really had that doesn't. much to say. Um, and and not only are, you know, the three mates are in their each in their own way, like arrested by the sight of the whale oncoming and accepting their deaths or or not accepting necessarily, but like grappling with their impending yes. deaths. And then everyone else is also having a similar experiences. From the ship's bows, nearly all the seamen now hung inactive. Hammers, bits of plank, lances and harpoons mechanically retained in their hands, just as they had darted from their various employments. All their enchanted eyes intent upon the whale, which from side to side, strangely vibrating his predestinating head, sent a broad band of overspreading semicircular foam before him as he rushed. So, like, everyone is just frozen, staring yes. at the whale. No They're one is, like, struggling to survive because they see the whale and his predestinating head. This is Moby Dick, the white whale, coming down upon them and they can do nothing. Yes. Everyone is just, like, there is no more point to trying to fix up this ship like we were trying to. Yeah, yeah, we cannot face this and uh, the next the next sentence retribution swift vengeance eternal malice were in his whole aspect and spite of all that mortal man could do the solid white buttress of his forehead smote the ship's starboard bow till men and timbers reeled some fell flat upon their faces like dislodged trucks the heads of the harponeers aloft shook on their bull-like necks through the breach they heard the waters pour as mountain torrents down a flume yeah so at this point moby dick just, like, breaks a big hole yep, in the ship. Yep, strikes the ship and holds it at the waterline. The Pequod is sinking. And and this, Ahab recognizes, is the second hearse. The, the Pequod sinking is the second hearse with wood grown in America. Its wood could only be American. Diving beneath the settling ship, the whale ran quivering along its keel, but turning underwater, swiftly shot to the surface again, far off the other bow, but within a few yards of Ahab's boat, where for a time he lay quiescent. So... Moby Dick strikes the ship and slays it and then just turns to watch his handiwork with Ahab yards away. Yeah. Do you want do you want Ahab's speech here? If you're willing to give the it to speech? me, I would love to do this. This is this is what Ahab says when okay, he's just, yards you know, away from Moby softly, Dick. Softly, softly. Just burst your lungs. <laughs> 
I turn my body from the sun. What ho, Tashtego! Let me hear thy hammer! Oh, ye three unsurrendered spires of mine, thou uncracked keel and only god-bullied hull, thou firm deck and haughty helm and pole-pointed prow, death-glorious ship, must ye then perish? And without me, am I cut off from the last fond pride of meanest shipwrecked captains? Oh, lonely death on lonely life! Oh, now I feel my topmost greatness lies in my topmost grief. Ho, ho, from all your furthest bounds, pour ye now in, ye bold billows of my whole foregone life, and top this one piled comber of my death. Towards thee I roll, thou all-destroying but unconquering whale, to the last I grapple with thee. From hell's heart I stab at thee, for hate's sake I spit my last breath at thee. Sink all coffins and all hearses to one common pool. And since neither can be mine, let me then tow to pieces while still chasing thee, though tied to thee, thou damned whale. Thus I give up the spear. <sighs> so It's the speech. Yeah, this is the, <laughs> you know. Uh, From hell's heart I stab at thee, for hate's sake I spit my last breath at thee. Yeah, this is him recognizing that he cannot possibly survive. He cannot possibly, uh like win this yes uh but he is going to fight to the last and even he even maybe thinks that uh, well hmm, when he says let me then tow to pieces is that him saying while chasing me he's saying i will pursue thee in this boat i'll be dragged along the line until the boat is destroyed and wrought to pieces i will not give up to the last i will follow you Yes, yeah. So when he's talking about something being towed to pieces, it's his boat or even And himself. maybe even his body, yeah, because, you know, there's plenty of wood in him. Yeah, so I think he is recognizing at this point that he cannot possibly kill this whale. Yes, he says, thou all-destroying but unconquering whale. And I really like also just this one adjective, only God-bullied hull. Only God can smite the Pequod. And, well... What has just smote the Pequod? Yeah, yeah. What has just bullied her hull? Yeah, this is at the moment that the Pequod is sinking. He is, like, celebrating the strength and nobility of the Pequod. Yes. Um, and he's celebrating also, and like, that's that's what he means by unconquering. He says, you can destroy, but you cannot make me kneel. Yes. And you, you can destroy the Pequod, but you cannot ever, like, undo her spirit. You cannot break her, in a sense. Yes. Uh, and, well. <sighs> yeah, and thus I give up the spear. The harpoon was darted. The stricken whale flew forward. With igniting velocity, the line ran through the groove, ran foul. Ahab stooped to clear it. He did clear it. But the flying turn caught him round the neck, and voicelessly as Turkish mutes bowstring their victim, he was shot out of the boat, ere the crew knew he was gone. Next instant, the heavy eye splice in the rope's final end flew out of the stark empty tub, knocked down an oarsman, and smiting the sea, disappeared in its depths. So, he fires the harpoon. It strikes. The line is snarled and will, will yank free of the boat. And so he, he clears it, but a loop goes round his neck. He is hanged. The hemp has killed him. Yes. And Every instance of the prophecy comes true. Yep. Totally. And, uh, and this is, this is Ahab's death, pulled down into the depths of the ocean by his own whale line, he fouled follows, around his neck. Yes, and he follows Moby Dick. He will be towed to pieces. Yes. <sighs> and 
you know, but he still at never point surrendered. He never stopped. No. He never, he was destroyed, but not conquered. Yes. And, uh, and at this point, the, the boat's crew are, you know, they're, they're tranced. They are like, they don't know what to do. And then, then their only hope is the ship. And of course, at that point, great they, God, where is the ship? And all they can see at that point is the. Uh, can, can I read this line? Yeah, sure. Soon they through dim, bewildering mediums saw her sidelong, fading phantom, as in the gaseous Fata Morgana, only the uppermost masts out of water, while fixed by infatuation, or fidelity or fate, to their once lofty perches, the pagan harponeers still maintained their sinking lookouts on the sea. And now concentric circles seize the lone boat itself, and all its crew, and each floating oar, and every lance pole, and spinning, animate and inanimate, all round and round in one vortex, carried the smallest chip of the Pequod out of sight. So the ship, the, the boat's crew, the uh, Ahab's crew, are now sucked into the whirlpool of the sinking Pequod as the harponeers remain upon the masts until all of it goes below. Yes. And, and, uh, and there's this last horrible event this incredible gothic event yes so as as the very last we bit want to of read the boat, this as well it's just i realize we're reading most of this chapter but it's so good yeah sure do you want this i would love it go for it but it has the last whelmings intermixingly poured themselves over the sunken head of the indian at the mainmast leaving a few inches of the erect spar yet visible together with long streaming yards of the flag which calmly undulated, with ironical coincidings, over the destroying billows they almost touched. At that instant, a red arm and a hammer hovered backwardly uplifted in the open air, in the act of nailing the flag faster and yet faster to the subsiding spar. A skyhawk that tauntingly had followed the main truck downwards from its natural home among the stars, pecking at the flag, and incommoding Tashtigo there. This bird now chanced to intercept its broad, fluttering wing between the hammer and the wood, and simultaneously feeling that ethereal thrill, the submerged savage beneath, in his death gasp, kept his hammer frozen there. And so the bird of heaven, with archangelic shrieks, and his imperial beak thrust upward, and his whole captive form folded in the flag of Ahab, went down with his ship, which, like Satan, would not sink to hell till she had dragged a living part of heaven along with her and helmeted herself with it. Now small fowls flew screaming over the yet yawning gulf. A sullen white surf beat against its steep sides. Then all collapsed, and the great shroud of the sea rolled on as it rolled five thousand years ago. So... In the last moment, Ahab is suddenly dead. The Pequod is all submerged. In fact, it's described that it has all vanished into the ocean before we get this image. There's this last thing that happens where Tashtigo ha holds with this hammer, who is like hammering faster and faster, even as his head is underwater, his arm is still hammering. And, and I think even like the moment... When the flag wraps the bird, at that point, Tashtigo is dead. His hand is frozen. I mean, I don't, the... yeah, in his death guess, he's, he's currently drowning, but he holds the bird there. Yes, it's just that I, I, I thought, the, the, the way that I was reading this is that it's, it's like literally, this is the last motion his hand makes is to strike the mast. And it's like, after that, he can't move anymore. Um. I mean, I think that he chooses to hold, because it says simultaneously feeling that ethereal thrill in his death gasp kept his hammer frozen there. So I think this is a last act of will. It is 
the bird has been pinned, and rather than continuing to hammer as it sinks, he holds it so the bird is dragged down into the abyss with him to drown. Yeah, yeah, that 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 definitely makes sense. And yeah, this this satanic imagery, this this very specifically paradise lost imagery of grasping some chunk of heaven and dragging it down with this uh, vast event. I mean, I think with God bullied on the page before the final arrangement is definitely Moby Dick as God and Ahab as like challenging God. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, ultimately, um, just as it did in the time of Noah, uh, the ocean <sighs> swallows man. Yeah. No, the, the Pequod, which is all humanity brought together, all of the, the isolados brought together into this single body to carry the will of Ahab is completely annihilated utterly lost, vanished below, nothing remains, and only the balloon will remain uncorroded deep, deep beneath the sea. Yeah. <sighs> it's, yeah, that's the, the end of the voyage of the Pequod, the absolute end. Um, I just, I love this note. There's no, there's no jetsam from this. There's no wreckage or, or remains from the ship sinking, it is all utterly consumed. Yeah. And uh, anything else here that we want to mention before we go on to the epilogue? Oh, there's one thing I wanted to ask you, which is, so you, ta you talked in the last couple episodes about the, the Macbeth-like omens that, are, that need to be walked through, the sort of, the way that all of these prophecies need to come true before Ahab is dead, according to Fidala. Well, now every prophecy has come true, did you enjoy that? Did, you, did it go well? Do you think that the, like, the way the prophecies worked out was satisfying? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, some, I, I didn't quite expect, uh, or, or I, don't, I won't say I didn't expect, but I didn't feel certain that it was all going to be laid out as clearly as mm -hmm. it is. Like, I don't think there can really be any argument about what the novel intends us to understand as the two hearses. Because yes. Ahab, Ahab shouts, the first hearse and the second hearse when they yes. happen. Um. I was expecting it to maybe be a little bit vaguer than that, but yeah. that, that is not what it is, which Personally, is fine. Personally, I was, I, I expected the hearses to show up subtly in previous chapters and then for Ahab to realize them, but it's, no, it's all during the final day of the chase, everything comes true. Yes. Yeah. And, and I think that's a really interesting decision. It is very much like what happens in Macbeth, right? Like it's all the final acts and scenes where the prophecies related to Macbeth come true. It's very much, ah, but you've been prophesized not to fall, but now you do and it all happens at once, tumultuously. And on some level, I think that that probably was less easily, less, uh, easily foreseen and slightly more shocking when Macbeth did it. Uh, yeah, that's fair. I mean, I I don't think I'm that... not I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that I think that the way these prophecies fall into place is very Macbeth. Yeah, I don't think that the intention is to create a sense of unpredictability. Mm -hmm. I think yeah. the intention, in fact, is to create a sense of predictability of of inevitability. Yes. Um, the whole act's immutably decreed. Yes, I I, I think I would have been disappointed if there had not been some kind of explicit acknowledgement of the prophecies. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, I think that would have been kind of a, a, a dramatic failure yeah. in a sense. And so there's a second thing. So I mentioned earlier that I want to talk about like some of the, the common readings of this section. And I, I want to get to them before the epilogue because I think the epilogue is a really nice place to end. Sure. Uh, but the 
common readings of this book are often that Ahab is fundamentally delusional. That Ahab's, uh, I think I've, I've seen the literal claim that he is a, quote, bad reader. He's too literal. He cannot handle a symbolism without inflicting it on a physical object in the world. Like, there's an evil in the world, therefore it must be the physical Moby Dick. And I'm going to be straightforward. I think that reading is bad. I think it's straightforwardly weak. I think that it completely fails to reckon with a few different things in the text. One, that Ahab is in fact quite sophisticated in how he talks about symbolism relations and intersections. He is not failing to see symbolism. He is in fact saying often that these omens are overly literal readings of the world and that you have to dig deeper and see how you are reflected in it and the world is reflected in you. Ahab is, in my opinion, an intense and quite a good reader. He may be wrong, but his processes of reading the world are sophisticated and developed, and dismissing him as just a bad reader and a liter an overly literal reader are, I think, actions that serve to themselves produce a bad reading of the text, a less interesting, a too literal reading, in fact. But even literally, there's also the prophecies, which literally come true, one after another, and that implies there is supernatural activity in the book of some kind. Even yep. if Ahab is wrong to hunt the whale, because Fidala, who is the, the prophet that we have, is clearly of the opinion that you will be destroyed, this is an evil thing you are doing, and it is my job to see you to this event. Yeah, like, I, I think that, uh, uh, you know, um, as you say, there's prophecies of doom are, are given and they literally come true. Yes. Um, in like really specific ways. Yes. Uh, and so, you know, I don't think that, uh, I, I think in a certain sense that one has to credit Fidala with some kind of genuine powers mm. on some level. Um, uh, but, but I do think that like, uh, that doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. solve the question of what Moby oh, Dick is. Certainly not. I, I want to be clear that I think that it creates an ambiguity that if, like, if you can imagine this book without the prophecies, without, let's say, Fidala in general, there is just Ahab pursuing the whale, Starbuck arguing against it, Ahab pursues the whale and is destroyed, and the Pequod is destroyed. I think you could make a much better argument then for a for a simple and straightforward reading of the events of the whale as, you know, Ahab goes after something that is simply physically superior to him and invests that with a lot of meaning. Yeah, yeah. But, first of all, I think that would be, again, missing a lot of the, the subtleties of Ahab's own character and readings. And also, what we have is not that book. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um... <sighs> Anyways, yeah, I just wanted to bring that up because I think it's a very common reading and explanation of the book, which is Ahab is mad, Ahab is pursuing the whale because he doesn't understand how symbolism and meaning work in the world, Starbuck is correct but unable to act on it, and then Ahab dies for it. And I think that that ignores so many of the weird intersecting elements of the text. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. Well, uh, do you have any other uh, pre-epilogue post-narrative thoughts. Uh, one thing that occurs to me is, you remember there was a point where I was like, I think Pip is just going to be stuck in that room until the end of the book. And you were like, I don't know if that's the case. That definitely happened. Yeah, yeah. Pip 100%. never came out of that cabin. Yep. <sighs> Pip went to the, went down in that cabin. <sighs> I, I just genuinely didn't remember what happened to Pip. 
Yeah, Sorry. no, it's fair. I, I, I didn't think that you... I, I thought you didn't remember. I just wanted to confirm that I was right. Yeah, you were right. You were right. Um, You know, I win some, I lose some. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. I I just also... I, I really love this chapter. I love the intensity of it. I love the... Yeah, the, the, the way it falls into this series of um, intense moments. I love how nearly every character recurs and says their piece or at least appears um admittedly the pagan harpeneers are sort of welded together and this does lead to the one complaint i have which is queequeg stops being an independent character with his like symbolic death when he's worried about death after that he's just part of the trio no it's true there's there's no specificity to queequeg here and i think that's a little disappointing yeah um, i you know, we did literally have a scene of his symbolic death to usher Queequeg out, and it was a very good sequence. So I'm not going to say that Queequeg is completely like... He is not, like Tashtigo and Daguar, completely just one of the pagan harpeneers. He is the one who is brought forward the most, but he still gets less reflection on and commentary on this doom than Flask does. And I think it's fair to say that Flask is a much more minor character than Queequeg for the book as a whole. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable take. Um, so, yeah, also just, Tashtigo with that bird remains... Yeah, that's very intense. It's so much. It's like, I genuinely do not have a clear reading of that, because there's so much going on there. There's the, the element of, like, you know, the pagan, or in this case, you know, obviously the, the Native American, um... We have Tashtigo has always been like the clear eyed and in some ways the most like perspicacious of our, you know, vital pagan harpooners and the oldest. He's had this kind of wisdom, but now he's like stuck in this motion of hammering. What does it mean to continue trying to hammer Ahab's flag to the mast as the ship is destroyed? Is it simply a statement of unconquerability? Like even as he dies, he continues to, you know, Ahab's cause and sign continues to be declared is the eagle related to the catskill eagle in the soul symbolically this like this thing of heights and depths that is now dragged down wrapped in ahab's flag and pinned by the mechanical hammer and we've had all this symbolism of the hammer and the nail. i just i don't know what to make of this yeah i mean it's so much you should also probably mention that like this is presumably the same bird that tore the flag away in the first place yes it, it's clearly returning and so is this revenge is this like an act of punishment is the if the eagle is this fragment of heaven that we get this comparison to with satan does that mean that this is declaring the success of ahab that he has in some way managed to take something from the divine from the world that was not uh was not given to him but was seized like has he as Satan is implied to have done in, you know, this particular reading of uh, of the ejection from heaven, uh, has successfully dragged something down into the world. Like, there's so much going on here. Yeah, yeah. It's like, really, you've got this speech of this incredible, like, moment of intensity. You've got the entire, like, novel building up to Ahab's death. And then you have this, and it's just absolutely exploding with symbolism with concepts with like gothic intensity i i love it so much yeah i also think it's really striking how sudden all of this is yes like the moment when moby dick decides to attack the pequod i'm not saying it comes out of nowhere like we've known this whole time that no, moby dick it's... sometimes maliciously attacks ships but it's like 
it does feel very sudden in that moment. And it is a total of three pages in my printed thing that goes from Ahab's pursuing the whale to Moby Dick turns and in a single act destroys everything. Yeah. And like from that point onward, there's no hope. Yes. <laughs> the the Pequod is sinking. Uh, Ahab is like just, he is destroyed, though again, not conquered. I feel it's very important to reiterate as often as possible. He remains unconquered. I think that's symbolically important. Yeah. And then after that, after this sudden turn and Ahab's incredibly sudden death, like he dies, like after the speech, I mean, on some level, what else are you going to do with Ahab after that speech? He's just yanked into the water, having thrown, thrown the spear and, you know, the hemp is there and it's just over. And then no one says anything after that. And then, after the boat has has been explicitly sunk with no trace, we get this, like, almost a flashback, a last turning to watch that final sinking. And it's this grotesquely gothic moment. Yes. Yeah, the, the suddenness is a huge part of the book, because it is 548 pages, and then everything happens. Yeah. Everything happens and everything is done. And on some level, like... You know, Queequeg doesn't get an actual death scene. Starbuck barely gets his last line, even though Starbuck has been an emotional core of this book all the way through. Ishmael isn't even mentioned in this chapter by name. He does not mention his own position until the epilogue. Everything just occurs, and this the pacing of the book being so slow and weird, I think this is another argument for Ishmael's, like, weird inability to tell a story straightforwardly that when the story becomes so utterly straightforward it just stops it reaches its conclusion and just everything happens and stops yeah uh do you want to talk <sighs> about that epilogue yeah yeah no i think i think it's i think we should or i will just keep talking about this bird forever yeah um so this is where uh basically ishmael explains how it is possible for him to be telling this story to us yep epilogue it the epilogue also has an epigram yes uh, and i only am escaped alone to tell thee job yeah um and uh powermobydick.com explains uh in job uh chapter one verses 15 through 19 job hears that his livestock and children are dead from a series of messengers who use these words so like these are the people telling job about disaster yes um saying and i only am escaped alone to tell yes thee. everything everything of yours has been destroyed and i alone am alive solely to be able to tell you that you have undergone this tragedy yes and uh it turns out that uh one survivor does exist yeah ishmael was the one oarsman who got knocked out of Ahab's boat and was not able to get back into the boat. Yes, um. he specifically, I was he whom the fates ordained to take the place of Ahab's bowsman when that bowsman assumed the vacant post. So after Fadala vanished, um, one of Ahab's uh, Filipino bowsmen, uh, like oarsmen, takes up the post at the bow that um, or the, uh, Fidala... the, the steersman post. Yes, yes. That Fadala had previously... Because it's not just the steersman, because remember, Fadala sits on the bow because Ahab insists on steering his own boat right, until right, 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 right. when he goes to Harpoon, they swap places. Yes. So uh, so Fadala's uh, role has often been actually surprisingly light in efforts because he neither darts the iron nor, during the chase, steers the boat. It's only once... Uh, Ahab goes up to dart the iron that Fadala does something. Otherwise, he just sits there silently, you know, until he died. Um, anyway, so so this... Ishmael's just an oarsman. He gets brought in to fill out that or the set of oarsmen. Yes, and uh, 
And and because he was not in Ahab's boat, he was a little further away from the whirlpool. Yes. Um, and so he was he was floating nearby and he was being drawn in towards the whirlpool and probably would have fallen into the yes, whirlpool and drowned. I, I love this slow description for like three sentences of, you know, um, so floating on the margin of the ensuing scene and in full sight of it, when the half-spent suction of the sunk ship reached me, I was then but slowly drawn towards the closing vortex. When I reached it, it had subsided to a creamy pool, round and round then, and ever contracting towards the bubble-like, bla- button-like black bubble at the axis of that slowly wheeling circle, like another Ixion I did revolve, till, gaining that vital center, the black bubble upward burst, and now, liberated by reason of its cunning spring and, owing to its great buoyancy, rising with great force, the coffin lifebuoy shot lengthwise from the sea, fell over, and floated by my side. So he's drawn slowly into this whirlpool. He will vanish. He can't, he clearly can't escape it. The, the Pequod's death will clean up every trace, except that the Queequeg's coffin, which was uh, set for a lifebuoy, pops up, and the whirlpool ends, and he's able to climb on board. Yeah, and he floats on that for almost a whole day and night, uh... And uh, is not eaten by sharks or attacked by birds. He specifically says, I floated on a soft and dirge-like mane. The unharming sharks, they glided by as if with padlocks on their mouths. The savage seahawks sailed with sheathed beaks. So there's almost this sense of like, I mean, the Book of Job reference makes it clear. He has been set aside to tell this story. Ishmael has been spared by God or nature or whatever. Or the fates. Yes, whatever whatever forces have decreed this act have chosen Ishmael through the series of you know he was put onto the uh, he was put onto the boat unexpectedly he wasn't a normal member of Ahab's crew he was knocked free because of you know pure chance and was unable to get back to the boat and was left behind during the action he barely barely wasn't sucked below by the whirlpool. And instead, the life boy, which no one else managed to get to and cling to as the as the boat sunk, um, he is saved by it. And yeah. now the sharks go by as if like they've been told not to eat him. The seahawks don't peck at him, and he is saved by the Rachel. It was the devious cruising Rachel that, in her retracing search after her missing children, only found another orphan. And yeah, no, it, that sentence still fucks me up. Oh God. Yeah. Like, just rereading it, and I'm tearing up a little. It's... Oh, it's so much. Yeah. Uh, <sighs> I, I want to maybe talk a little bit about our, our plans for well, following up. I want to mention one thing oh, first, which it. is, in the first publication of Moby ah, Dick, yes. which was a London publication for weird copyright reasons involving... There was a ton of uh, book piracy during the... Um, during the uh, 19th century, especially um, American books in England or English books in America. And so Moby Dick was first published in London, and it was like uh, Melville's career generally been kind of going down the tubes. This was supposed to turn around. Spoilers, it did not. Audiences at the time did not find Moby Dick comprehensible at all. But part of that was that the London publishing was terrible. Um, First of all, it was called The Whale, not Moby Dick or The Whale, but that was because he hadn't decided on the title yet. But... It, like, got the appendix, like, the, um, the, like, the opening section with all the quotes mixed up into the main book. It got, uh, some chapters were just missing, and one thing that was missing is the epilogue. So the original published version of Moby Dick just ended with, and the great shroud of the sea rolled on as it rolled 5,000 years ago. And, like, here's the thing. That's amazing. Imagine reading this book and it just ends with that. 
Like, that's just where it stops. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I am glad we have the epilogue, uh, because it's very good, and it explains how Ishmael is alive rather than, and no one survived to tell the story. Wait, but what? No one survived. What about that whole thing where you were in Peru? No one survived. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so Ishmael explicitly survives in a way that has this almost, this almost, this this at least heightened feel, this supernatural feel, this way, this sense that, like, he has been set aside to tell this story. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and oh, the Rachel coming upon him in its, like, turning back and forth upon the sea to find its missing children, this sort of tragedy piled on tragedy. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, that, this is, I feel a little silly, like, bringing up such a quibble, but when he says devious cruising Rachel, that's what he means is that they are sailing, like, a roundabout course. Not that yeah, there's yeah. anything... Like devious, Cunning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's devious in the sense of deviating from a course. Yeah. <sighs> so I think that. Okay, first of all, I definitely think it would be nice to have sort of a a, a whole book wrap up episode. We've mm-hmm. talked about the possibility of that. I was like, maybe we'll just hit all that stuff in the episode where <laughs> we do the last chapter. But no, I think there's a lot more to say about yeah. the book as a whole. I think so. there is. I think there's um there's a few things we wanted to do. Like there's the. Uh, Power Moby Dick completion quiz. Yeah, <laughs> so I was about to mention that. When I got to the end of this book, uh, on the page for the epilogue, there's a, a bit after it says Finnis on PowerMobyDick.com that says, Reader, if you would like a certificate of completion for this book, please click here. <laughs> and I clicked here, and it turns out that you can fill out a quiz and get a password to a link that will allow you to print out a PDF that certifies that you have completed Moby Dick <laughs> on PowerMobyDick.com. So I'm obviously going to do this, but I want to do it on an episode. And I think that, yeah, our... our we're, whole... we're winding down here. We don't, we don't have the energy for that. Yeah, so we'll do that next time. Um, and uh, I also think it would be a great time to take some listener questions. Um, mm, yes. We've, like... Ages ago, we talked about uh, having... Taking listener questions and responding to them. Yes, exactly. Um, and we, we haven't done that. We've been way too obsessed with Moby Dick. Yeah, um, but I do want us to do that. Um, I shrugged. You can't see that. <laughs> that. That's my degree of care and concern for our listeners. Saying, whoops, we didn't get to the thing, and then doing a visual thing you can't see in this medium. Yeah. I'm the bad co-host. Yeah, uh, this is a little embarrassing. I should have done this beforehand, but I don't have to hand the actual email address that we got. I'll <laughs> we'll edit put it, it in, in the description. Yeah. Oh, we'll put it in the description. I'll edit it into the yeah, audio. Yeah. audio. Um, but yeah, so please email whalesstatements at gmail.com with any questions you have about Moby Dick. Um, <laughs> no, no, that's perfectly practical. That was a very good thing to do. I just... Sorry, you did you did a hand gesture. I did. Do you it. did a little hand gesture I, for like I, spacing out the place I, where we're going to put the word. To make a space where I could edit in the actual email address, and I made a little gesture with my hands, indicating creating a space. Because so now you all know, podcasting is a theater of the mind. <laughs> Anyways. Podcasting is hand puppetry for you and me. <laughs> clearly, uh, okay. So yeah, <sighs> we're gonna have a we're gonna have like a. Um, 
a denouement episode. As, as the novel does not have a denouement, <laughs> yes. as, as you said. The novel has not given us this thing, so we are going to take one to sort out some things. Probably we'll do that thing where we'll talk about what our favorite chapters were. Yeah, yeah. And I keep saying, this is my one of my favorite chapters for, oh, like, Oh, yeah, I have to make that chapter ranker chapters. thing. Yeah, I mean, I would also be happy to just, you know, prepare I want, for... Okay, you I want... I want to make the chapter ranker. Um, okay, if you make the chapter ranker, you're going to have to make it available to all of us. Of course, well. yes, I will, I will do that. Very um, nice. Uh, yeah, you can also, by the way, if emailing is, is inconvenient, you can totally just at me on Twitter. I'm, I'm willing to take questions that way. Um, or, or potentially post in the Abnormal Mapping Discord channel. Um, you can always at me on Twitter. I have my notifications set up so that if you don't, if I don't follow you, you won't pop a notification, but I'll try to pay, like, check my ads. Yeah. Um, oh, we should, we, <laughs> I feel like co-host. we don't usually remember to do this at the end of the podcast. I'm not sure how much it matters, but we should, if we're telling people to add us on yeah, Twitter. Yeah, we should, yep, yep. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Char Asnablunt. And I'm on Twitter at Silkenstone. All one word. Yeah. Um. And if you, uh, add us there, we can, um, uh, send you a link to a PDF to a certificate of completion oh of my God. our uh, of our podcast. Uh, oh, of our podcast. Okay, I thought you. No, were, I thought I'm you were going to propose tell people that they've read Moby Dick by listening to our podcast. I was, uh, yeah, I thought you were going to propose that we share the password protected no, link do to that the to... certificate of completion. I may have my my issues with Power Moby Dick's annotations occasionally, but we are deeply in our debt to our definitely real sponsor, PowerMobyDick.com. For providing us this great resource, and I would never share that link without, you know, going, you know, sharing their quiz and having people go through the sacred act of earning their Power Moby Dick completion certificate. Thank Jeez. you. I'm so glad you respect it. I'm not it. that bad a co-host. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, <sighs> totally. We will send you a link to our PDF that certifies that you've listened to our podcast if you want that. Um I don't think we're actually going to make that. No, I'm not actually going to make it. I will make, if someone asks me for a certificate of completion for the podcast on Twitter, I will make one in paint and it will look terrible and I will put it up on my Twitter or I will, no, I will DM it to you. Yeah. It's. (laughs) Yeah. I will DM you the JPEG or something of like taking the file for our, like the, the picture we have of uh, Higgledy Piggledy Whale statements, our like cover image. I will, like, put a certificate seal on it. I'll put the Nintendo seal of quality on it. <laughs> and I'll, like, that can be your certificate for completing the podcast if you, like, get at me somewhere online. Yeah, all right. Okay. This We're... is my very stupid promise to you. All right, before we make any more promises, <laughs> we should really wrap this one up. Oh, yeah, no, we're just, we're absolutely in an Ishmael mood. We're, like, uh, fading fast, but it has been, it has been really wonderful reading this book with you. And it's been really wonderful getting to share our reactions and our thoughts with the dear listeners of this podcast. And I just wanted to say that since this is like the the book conclusion episode. Yeah, I've been so happy to go on this journey with you and uh, I'm I'm really proud to have gotten to the end and I'm yeah. really I'm really like impressed with anyone who's been like following our whole journey this whole time or You deserve a certificate. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um and, and even if you haven't been following this whole time and you are just now listening, I really appreciate you listening, however you do it, whatever order you do it in. Um yeah. So? I mean, it almost feels inappropriate to end it the normal way, because we know now. It is, after uh, all, a, a stove, stove boat. boat.